Welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. This is the place where we take a no bullshit look at life's little lessons. Here, together, we find the spiritual glory in even the most wicked hard story. This is a journey from fear back to love and how we can find our greatest strength and happiness in some of the most unlikely places. I believe that if you're willing to change your mind, you can totally change your life. So, are you ready to rewrite your story and choose to live free? Let's do this. Hey, you guys, and welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. I am beyond excited. I am so wicked excited right now, you guys. I am literally talking to one of my favorite people on the planet. And I already, I already warned Andre, who I often call AD3. I already warned him, Andre Debuse III, uh, that he's going to have to just sit for a minute and listen to me gush. But before I kind of get into the personal parts of it, I'm just going to bring you guys up to speed. Some of you obviously if you're a reader, if you're a lover of words and books, then you already know who my esteemed guest is. But for those of you who maybe don't, let me just tell you a little bit about him and uh, why he's so awesome. <laughs> okay. So Andre Debusa III is the author of, and I have a bunch of his books over here next to me. I'll be flashing these suckers later. I got, I got a few of them over here. Uh, he is the author of The Cage Keeper and Other Stories, uh, Blues Man. I've got both of these right here, Blues Man. And the New York Times bestseller, The House of Sand and Fog, uh, The Garden of Last Days, and his memoir, Townie, which you guys, come on, all right, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and it was a number four New York Times bestseller and a New York Times editor choice. His work has been included in so many things, it's ridiculous, but the best American essays, the best spiritual writing anthologies, and House of Sand and Fog, which I already mentioned. Not only was it an Oprah Book Club pick, which again, another great story around that. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. It won a National Book Award. It was made into an Academy Award nominated film starring Ben King Kingsley and Jennifer Connelly. And I'll just have to say, sidebar, it's so fascinating to me now that when I saw that movie, I, I did not know you. And mm. now knowing you and knowing what I know about that movie, it was, it, it's just one of those moments in your life. I remember that movie like gutted me. <laughs> and now knowing you and your brilliance totally makes sense. Mm. Uh, his 2013 novella collection, which is Dirty Love, which I got that one right here too, so you guys can see them. All right, this is a good one too. Uh, it was a notable book by the Washington Post, the New York Times. It was named a New York Times Editor Choice and a Kirkus Stad Best Book of 2013. And his newest novel, this sucker right here, Gone So Long, published in October 2018. And I kind of felt like it was a, a birthday present to me because it came out my birthday month and I really appreciated that. Thanks, Andre. Uh, this one was received uh, stad reviews from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal. It was named uh, on the top of best book lists, including the Boston Globe, mm, 20 best books of 2018, and on and on and on. He's won a Guggenheim. He's won the National Magazine Award for Fiction. He's won not one, but two Pushcart Prizes and an American Academy of Arts Letters Award in Literature. He is a full-time teacher at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. 
He lives with his beautiful wife, Fontaine, who I love and we'll talk about, and his three kids. Okay, that's the official bio. Hi, Andre. Hi, Karen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. And you guys, uh, I'm wearing this shirt today because it's my mass hole shirt. And you'll see right on here, it says Townie Attitude. And it's a little, little, a little nod to my beautiful friend and writer, Andre. And here's the thing, you guys, you know this story. Uh, you know this, this show is all about like storytelling and spirituality and moving from our story to our glory about how the things that happen to us, while they might inform us and influence us and inspire us, they don't have to define us, meaning like the wicked hot shit that we go through. And it's interesting because I recently read um, a description that somebody said about you, which I'm going to read to you. And it's going to lead into like maybe one of my first questions. And I'm going to let you talk for a second. I'm going to shut my big mouth and let you talk. So in writing hard stories, you remember this one? I do. Melanie Brooks. So Melanie described you like this. She said, as she was waiting to talk to you, he has dark wavy hair salted with traces of gray, a strong jaw, kind eyes, and a ready smile. This is the part I want to kind of, get into. He projects an air of self-assurance, but not arrogance, an effortless charisma that warrants attention. But here's the thing. You weren't always that way, right? As a kid, there was this transformation that happened to you. So can we kind of talk about that origin story of like kid from Haverhill, like the fighter to the writer? Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah. Well, first of all, Karen, I'm, I'm such a fan of you, so thank you for having me. Um, no, you are one of my favorite people on the planet, and I know a lot of people. <laughs> you. Uh, well, look, I won't go on and on, but you know, before I get to the fighter, I have to get to the little boy I was. Um, you know, it's interesting. I just I just turned 61 last week or two yes, you did September 11th. Weird, and uh, <laughs> the older I get. Stranger, the easier it is to remember being a kid. I don't know what that's about. Something's going on there. Anyway, um, I, I feel like I'm more in touch with the boy I always was. Maybe because I'm not trying to not be that kid anymore. Uh, so, look, uh, I'm the son of a great short story writer of the same name, which is why I have that clunky three. I don't really like all my name. I'm the son of the great short story writer, Andre Debuse. Uh, my mom and dad um, eloped from Louisiana when they were 18 and 20. All my family, my mom, dad, everybody's from Louisiana. Wow. Uh, my dad in, uh, was a Marine captain. He, he left the Marines and um, got into the Ira Writers Workshop in Iowa. After he got his MFA, he got his first teaching job at the now defunct Bradford Junior College, which became Bradford College. And... Um, you know, when we, so we moved, that's how he got to New England. That's how he got to this neck of the woods for, because of his teaching job. Yeah. And this is the mid-late 60s. He was a full-time professor, but he was making $7,000 a year. 7000 Now, that was a lot more in the 60s than it is now, but it sure wasn't much for a family of six. So we're living in, you know, I remember, it's just a clear in my whole body. The, we lived in this uninsulated summer camp all year long on this pond in New Hampshire. Mm. And we loved it because we were kids and we were on a pond in the woods. But um, my parents' marriage quickly, uh, quickly ended. They were only married nine or ten years. 
And I watched my mother do what far too many single women do. Um, she had to pick up and take over. She, when, you know, when she was going to lope with my old man, she went to her grandfather, who was a third grade educated pipe fitter. And she said, you know, she told him she was eloping with this guy, Andre Buse from Lafayette, Louisiana. And my grandfather said, well, there ain't been no damn divorces in this family. And if this don't work out, you ain't coming home. And so nine years later, it did not work out. So because of what she said to him, what he said to her, there's no way she's going to pack mm -hmm. and go home. And by the way, we didn't have a car for the first few weeks. My parents owned one car. My dad needed it to teach. So I watched my mom get a job as a nurse's aide and a waitress. She started to work her way through school. And she ended up getting a degree in social services, which she did for, she worked in social services her whole adult life. Mm -hmm. We were a strange family in that uh, <laughs> we had a house full of books, but we were a member of the educated working poor. I mean, my, we, we lived, we moved two, two to three times a year for cheaper rent. Yeah. I mean, we grew up on the Merrimack River in these mill towns. I was a little kid. I was a small, small guy, little bones, and, you know, I would use adverbs in daily speech. Hey, dupus, want to hit off this joint? Not necessarily. Boom! I get punched in the face, and I got beat up a lot. You know, kids are mean when you're... Yeah, they are. Brutal. You know, and, you know, I can look back sometimes with dark comedy about, you know, like using adverbs and getting punched in the face, but, and you and I have talked about this, when I look back at my... Even now, I can feel it sitting here in this chair. I, I had two predominant emotions in my daily life as a kid. One was physical fear, and two was just self-loathing. I just hated who I was, and I hated who I was because I was small and scared, and I was a physical coward. I would just, you know, if you know violence, and sadly far too many people do, uh, you either run like hell, you fight like hell, or you freeze. And whenever I was in a fight situation, I'm usually just looking at the kid the wrong way, and then before I know it, I'm on the ground getting kicked in the face, is um, I would freeze. And it took years, years to figure out why I froze instead of, I didn't even run, I just froze. And, and writing on my, you know, my accidental memoir, Townie, helped me to actually get some insight on what the freezing was about. You know, it's all, you know, it's a fear response, but also in my case, I was still trying to rationalize and figure out why is this guy punch me in the face yes. to him why is he hurting me I, I you know and years later and, and I think you and I have talked about this too Karen I um I was reading a horrible I mean a really good news story but a, but about the Tenement Square massacre which you don't talk about as a world anymore which is a crime I still think it's a crime that we took part in the Beijing Olympics frankly because we've forgotten those brave, beautiful kids who tried to bring about democratic reforms in the summer of 89 in Beijing. Uh, the dictatorship put up with it for a few weeks and then massacred them, rolled them over with tanks, shot them to death. Uh, and totally excised from, from uh, Chinese history. Interestingly, they call it fake news, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, I'm reading this description by a world, uh, British uh, BBC war correspondent who was in Tim Square. And he describes one of the 23-year-old uh, leaders getting shot in the chest by an, on, by an approaching soldier. His 23-year-old girlfriend, who's also a leader in the movement, is screaming at the soldier who did it, who's also their age. They're just, you know, the soldiers are kids of the farmers in the provinces. She's screaming, why? Why? 
why? And she, he shoots her in the head and kills her. And I remember reading this piece in the Times and weeping, weeping. Yeah. But it got me thinking about innocence. That maybe that's when you lose your innocence, when you just stop asking why the brutality. You just expect it. So then you either fucking start fighting like hell or running like hell. So, um, you know, I got beat up a lot and a lot and a lot. And, and finally, uh, something happened that, that changed my life. My brother was beaten really badly in front of me by a grown man, and I couldn't do anything to – I didn't protect him. I just froze again. And, and after that horrible beating, I, uh, I actually went into the rented house my mother couldn't afford and, um, in Haverhill. It was like 1973, 74, so I'm about 14 – about 14 years old, and I had long hair down on my waist because it was the 70s, and you know we all look like rockers. And and I looked at my 14-year-old face, and I said, I don't care what happens to you anymore. I don't care if you get shot, killed, you know, stabbed, your brains kicked in. You are never gonna not fight back again. And that night, I started to do push-ups and sit-ups. I got like three of each. I was, you know, terrible shape. Um, but I began to lift weights. I began to work out. I began to box. And much to my surprise, I had boxing ability. And I became uh, a vigilante is what I became. I, I, to this day, I despise injustice. I despise cruelty. I, so therefore, I despise uh, misogyny and homophobia and racism and any powerful lording over powerless bullying bullying i despise bullying and so but for for years i i would go look for bullies and usually you know tragically this would be a man hitting a woman in a bar or a house party and i'd put him in the hospital or i try to and and i was a far more effective fighter than i should have been because i'm not a tough guy i was just i was so insanely full of self-hatred that i would rather see I would rather die a violent death than see a coward in the mirror ever again, which made me a very dangerous kid. Yes. Um, the, the weird thing is I got social rewards for this that were I didn't see coming. The local police love me because I'm wailing on these punks that they want to, but they can't without losing their badges. Women started to notice me. And, and what was heaven, like ambrosia from the gods for me <laughs> I went from being thought of as a, you know, all the words you get called as a, you know, a small coward, you know, sissy, pussy, all these words, but, you know, misogynistic bullshit anyway, but um, to, oh, watch out for Dubas, he's a tough kid. Nothing could be more beautiful to hear. Sure. The ego, the ego, like, w oh. loves that. Oh, my God, it was like Academy Award, Nobel Prize, tough kid. Nothing could be better. Anyway, right, so, yeah. so now I will get to writing. So we all have this. I'm not, I'm not rushing you. I love this. In fact, I wanted to just say that um, you called yourself, you went from victim to a victimizer of victims. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, let me, let me just read actually what you actually. Yeah, I, went, I went from victim to a victimizer of victimizers. Oh, not that's right. Victimizer of victimizers. Exactly. Sorry. Thank you for correcting me. I mean, me. it was almost, I mean, you can almost put a cape and mask on me. And I, I, you know, I, I got beat up a few times, once almost beaten to death by a much stronger, tougher guy. I, I got arrested a few times for disorderly and all that. But, you know, we all have this beautiful voice, and you and I have talked about this in depth, this quiet voice. And, of course, this is your work is so much around this, this small, quiet voice that, that we should listen to. The word intuition from the Latin, I just this gives me goosebumps. It means to watch over or to guard mm -hmm. and, and 
even though I was getting social rewards, even though I'd gone from being passive to active, my body went from being soft to hard. You know, I went from not being able to do more than five sit-ups. I once did a thousand sit-ups without stopping till my lower back was bleeding. Now, you know, I was in crazy condition, but I was also insane. Um, all, despite all those rewards, a little voice inside me said, you know, you're going to die doing this. Or maybe worse than, maybe worse than that, you might kill another human being. Mm -hmm. you who say you hate violence you, you could murder someone yeah. and um so as a way to control my violence i said well okay i know i'm not afraid to fight anymore i'm just terrified not to fight so i'm going to stay away from places where it's easy to find trouble <laughs> where that, it's easy to find someone you know slapping his girlfriend or his wife or big guy punching a little guy instead i i'm just going to box i tend so i'm good at it so it'll be my sport and and so one night and this is in Townie, as you know, my memoir, Townie. I, uh, I'm living in Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. And uh, I have so many. I, it, you know how hard it is for a Lawrence kid to not fill in the blanks of the rest of that rhyme? I know. Fill it in. What, what, how's it go? How's it well, go? There's a couple of them. There's one that says, the, the mothers say no, but the daughters give in. You never come out the same way you went in. Oh, I, my I, God. There's so many. Everybody from Lynn, I know hates those things so i try not to say it to lincoln i don't i just had to i had like my lauren the vicky with two caves from lawrence who i call my shadow self who she's often the first voice to speak in a course in miracles we say uh the ego speaks first and it's always loudest and i always add and it's always wrong but vicky with two k's like she like she knows those rhymes in and out so i just try to say to her it's okay you don't you don't have to I love that. The ego speaks first and it's always loudest. Did you make that up? No, it's from it's from A Course in Miracles, which is, uh, you know. I love that. Yeah, it speaks first, it's always loudest, and I add it's always wrong because. Uh, yeah, okay, so so perfect segue. So I got this little voice inside me saying, back off, man, back off. Bad road. Even though, even though, and let me just say, the thing that I learned most from those years of weight training and boxing and, you know, changing my life uh, even though it led to, you know, it was in the service of violence against other people. The truth is, I learned you can change your life. I, I didn't know that. So anyway, um, I'm living in Lynn. I'm working construction all day with my brother. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm training for the Golden Gloves down low, which sounds impressive. I just signed up. But, you know, I was really well in the training. It sounds really good. Yeah, he was training for the Golden Gloves. I didn't take part, but... <laughs> But I, I, was, I was, had every intention. I had my AAU number, and I was doing well in the training at, at the boys' club in Lynn. And anyway, one night, winter night, after a day of construction, I was getting ready to, you know, two-mile run to the gym, two-hour workout, two-mile run back, you know. And something made me, to this day, I don't believe in God, but I believe in the divine. I'm so happy. That's one of my things that I want to talk about later. We'll circle back to it. But this concept of like uh, writing as as uh, spiritual practice or whatever. But go ahead. Like I don't believe in God, but I believe in the divine. So something intervened on your behalf. Something I would call that spirit, right? The, yeah. I would say the part of your mind that was not fucking insane yeah. or the part of your mind, as I might say in spiritual mentoring work, is connected with God, source, divine, universe, spirit, whatever you want to call it. I never get hung up on the name. But the part of you that, that knew the true you yeah. spoke, uh, spoke to you. And for some reason, there was enough of a pause where you were smart enough to sit your ass down and listen. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if I was smart, but I was, uh, 
I don't know. I, I just followed it. Thank God. I say thank God. I don't believe that there is an entity as a God who knows my name or cares about me. I do believe that there is something beautiful and divine and mysterious in and around all of us human beings all at once. You know, that Hindi expression, namaste, the divine in me bows to the divine in you. I, I guess that's what I believe, that there's something... Beautiful in everyone, even the most fallen among us. It, yes. It's hard to find some for some of us, but it's there. So anyway, um, so I was, I was, you know, long day of construction. I was really tired. I put on my sweats. I was getting ready to run. It was like three degrees out and something, and I, I was going to go. I mean, nothing stopped me from that kind of discomfort, but something made me sit my ass down at my little table, my little kitchen, get a piece of paper and a pencil, brew a cup of tea, and I started to write a scene from the point of view of a young woman losing her virginity to her boyfriend in his car in the woods in Maine. And, and I hadn't been reading much fiction. I, I, I don't know where it came from, but when I finished writing, I took a sip of the tea. It had been boiling, and, and now it's like room temperature. You know, I thought I'd been writing for 10 minutes, but it's clearly, you know, over an hour. And the thing is, I felt for the first time in my life, I felt like Andre. I said, oh, here you are. And I'm not saying that I wanted to be a writer then. But I knew that I had to keep doing this to be, to be myself. And, and, and honestly, that's, I've been writing five, six days a week since that night in Lynn in 1983 or whatever it was for that feeling. You know, the writer Thomas Williams was asked, I love what he said. He, some, some journalists asked him, Mr. Williams, why do you write? He says, oh, that's, that's easy. I write so that I don't die before I'm dead. And so... One, so, and by the way, almost immediately, so then it became a, a, a daily practice. I would get, get a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'd start writing scenes, and I'd start trying to get what was in me out. And almost immediately, I wanted to stop punching people in the face. That's, I, I kept fighting for a few years. You know, in the last fight I was in, some guy was beaten up with his bare fists, his wife on a corner of Newburyport, of all places, which is a little shishi town now, but it wasn't when I was growing yeah. up. Um, that's the last fight I was in. I, you know, went after him. But my point is, um, writing saved my life. It it got yeah. me literally off the path of violence. It gave me another way to express myself. Um, but also, it taught me, Karen, that I've been looking at the world in a, in a fundamentalist way, as in like a musical fundamentalist way, like no undertones and no overtones. Oh, you hit your girlfriend. You're bad. You should just be executed. Uh, what? I still think it's fucking horrendous, but I've learned to hate the sin and not the sinner. And yeah. writing has taught me that. Writing has gotten me there. Nothing else has, really, I think, more than writing. Because how can you try to slip into the private experience of another human being with your pencil or pen or keyboard without... It's a, it's, it's a sustained act of empathy. Well, I think, yeah. So what you're talking about, I, I talk about it like... Um, and it's been interesting, right? So being the kid of a murdered mother, so violence has been a huge um, aspect of my life. Violence, being a kid growing up in Lawrence, Mass, Boston, Mass, but also nonviolence. It's not surprising that I choose a path of nonviolence as an adult because, you know, of where I came from. But the thing that you're talking about, I think... Um, in the role of forgiveness, because it was set upon me that I knew, and I don't know if I've ever told you this story, like my mother, and I'm going to make my point, to your point. Well, take but my mother started coming to me in dreams uh, in my early 20s, and she said to me, I've forgiven him, and now it's your turn. 
I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was screwed because, you know, I came from eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And I came from a family of like, uh, you know, I was an Irish kid, but my step family, my stepfather, my uncle Manny, my cousins, you know, they were all like, you know, uh, Italian and Portuguese. And they were like into the whole like mafia thing. Like my uncle Manny, like, you know, had a handkerchief always. My father, my uncle Manny, my grandfather all had handkerchiefs. And they were always like wiping their face and their mustaches and, you know, like shirt collars undone down to here. And my uncle Manny, when he was like in his forties, like got a, a tattoo of an eye on, on, on the back of his shoulder. And I remember I've been at his house cause he was the only, he had a, like an above ground pool. He lived in Methuen and we went over his house for a barbecue cookout or something. And I remember saying to him, uncle Manny, you know, why did you get a tattoo of an eyeball? You know, I'm a little kid. And he's like, so when the bastards try to see me, like when the bastards try to stab me in the back, I see him coming, right? It's just like like this whole thing. Oh. But any, yeah, so, but when I was set upon to try to figure out how to forgive um, my mother's killer um, and forgive like you, like forgive myself and forgive just all the shit that kind of came with, with my mother's death, uh, the way it just kind of blew up the whole family. Um, you know, my mother, I always say, like had this uh, incredible gravitational pull that you could not resist. So when she died, it was like all the surrounding planets went flying out in all directions, you know? And so again, to my, what I'm trying to say is what I realized that in order to forgive him, in order to do this deeper spiritual work to end my own suffering, as selfishly as it was, I had to meet him and I had to meet everybody in my life with curiosity instead of judgment. Yeah. So that tone that you're talking about, it's almost like saying, well, that's red. And I'm like, yeah, well, there's also like tomato red and, and orangish red. And there's all these tones or notes in music, if you want to call it that, or hues of color, where we don't just get to say they're one thing, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's what allowed me to forgive him is when, uh, you know, it started with the poet Rumi, uh, where he said... Um, the, the wound is where the light comes in. And then lower, Leonard Cohen changed it in his song that he's famous for, there's a crack in everything, it's how the light gets in. Um, and it was this momentary crack that um, when he, I don't think I've ever told you this story and I don't, wanna, I don't wanna tell the whole story, but I'll tell a little bit of it is uh, when I was at BU uh, my freshman year, um, I had, I never told anybody this in my family, but I had a plan, right? Like, so I, I was suffering so much. I was suffering so much because nobody in my family talked about what happened to my mother. And so I didn't really understand. Like, you know how you always say, um, like, I know what happened. I know she was beaten to death. Like, I know what happened, but like, what the hell happened? Right. And so I was trying to make sense of this senseless Information versus experience. Right. And it was like trying to make sense of a senseless thing. And I think that's the part that I really relate to when you were talking about that little boy who you're like, I think, you know, you were talking about the three F's, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. And there's now a new one, a fourth one, and it's called to fawn. And it means that you kind of go along with the person in power to keep yourself from getting harmed. And I did a combination of fawning as a child when I was little and then I started fighting. I didn't necessarily fight with my dukes, but I had my dukes up. Like I became a fighter. I became very tough, right? So when I kind of just like think about this, so 
I'm, I'm a freshman at BU and uh, I don't know anything about this guy, like why it happened. So I had determined, I was like, okay, when I turn 18, because for some reason I thought when I'm 18, they'll let me go do this thing, right? This is my story. I'm so stupid, but I'm like, when I'm 18, I'm going to go to the prison. Not stupid. No, but I, you know what I'm saying? Like I had made the story in my head of like this and this like, believing that once I knew why he did it or what happened that night, then I would have peace, right? So I was looking for this answer outside of myself and I was like, well, I'm gonna go to the prison and I'm gonna sit down eye to eye and I'm gonna ask this guy, like, why did you do it? Like, what happened that night, right? And so um, I, turned eight, I turned 18 in October, now it's December and I have my finals at BU. I don't have a phone in my room. So I'm like in the lobby, like quarters, like calling my boyfriend, you know, calling whatever. And I uh, just checking in with him. So I was so terrified that remember one time you and I had a conversation. It was at Southern New Hampshire university. You were there for writer's day. I think it was the day you were doing the keynote speech and, um, you were wearing like your cowboy boots. Like I know all, I don't know all your clothes, but like, I know you're like, I'm here as the writer speaking clothes. And so you have this jacket you wear and the button down and the, the jeans and the boots. Right. And so I'm looking at you in this jacket and we were talking about that and you said something like, and you can correct me if you remember and I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I think sometimes that I wear this jacket to like kind of prove that I belong here or something like that. Like there's this concept of ourselves, right. Of like, Maybe they'll take me more seriously or whatever, wearing, <laughs> wearing this thing. And yeah. so, yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. So I, I don't know where I was going with that. But. It was the shame of the former poor kid. Yeah. I, I didn't, I never owned a jacket until I was, I never, I never put a suit jacket on my body until I was 25 and my wealthy girlfriend bought me one. Right. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing, but continue. Yeah. So anyway, so I was like, um, you know, checking in, I was checking in with, with my boyfriend. Oh, I know where I was going with that. Cause like you, I was terrified. I was going to flunk out of college. Like I was terrified and I got there my first year at BU, which was like $24,000. I paid for with the money that I got from my dead mother's insurance policy. So like no pressure, right? Like no pressure. Like, Oh my God. Wow. If I, if I mess up, I'm screwed. Right. Uh, what am I going to do? So I like made Dean's list, right? I was trying so hard to not be dumb, right? I was like, uh, so um, I'm, I, all I did was like head in the book. So I take a study break and I go downstairs and I call my boyfriend at the time. Uh, his name, his name is, well, his real name is Francis. Everybody calls him buddy, but I always call him Francis. So, uh, you know, I call him and he picks up the phone and he was always a sweet kid. He was younger than me, but he was being too nice. You know, that's suspiciously nice. And I remember mm -hmm. saying to him like, all right, Francis, what's going on? And he's like, um, uh, um, and he's like, Caravo is dead. And I'm like, my whole plan was I was going to get the answers and I was going to finally have peace. And now, uh, and I just said, what the fuck do you mean Caravo is dead? And he said, and here, I'll show you. I got a picture. Jesus. So th this is, this is, that's him. <clears throat> so I, uh, I was like, I'm like, and when I was like, what? And, he, and I said, when? And he said, cause I'm in Boston, right? They're in Lawrence. He says three days ago. 
and like I lose it. What the fuck? And he's like, hey, you were studying. We didn't want it. And I was like, boom. And I slammed down the payphone, dig in my pocket. Boom. Remember when you has to, used to have to memorize phone numbers? Yeah. I, so I pull it, boom. To this day, I remember that, this number. I dial my sister, 603-329-5176. Boom. And my sister, before she can even, huh? And when the fuck were you going to tell me? She knew exactly what I was talking about. Okay, we didn't want, he was in a boom. And like, I, I was just horrified, horrified that I wasn't going to get my chance to talk to him. I'm like, so the answer died with him. Now it's between like God, him and my mother and or whatever the divine is that has, knows the omnipotent view. And I was like, I was crushed. So, but here's what happened. I go to my stepfather's house, so like a few days later now, uh, finals are over, I go home. And when I go home to Lawrence, it's like, I don't have a place to live, right? Because my aunt and uncle dropped me off at college day one. I lived with them for about four years. So day one at college, they dropped me off. I'm 17, I'm on my own. So it's like, nobody talked to me about the plan of like, well, on breaks and in the summer, like, where do you live now? Cause you're, you're a kid without a home, right? And I was like, ah. Oh. So like I went home and we would like run around and see that one and see this one. I go to my stepfather's house, it's Christmas Eve and they can't see us. So my sister Kim and I come in the door and the Italians and the Portuguese, they can't see us yet where we're standing. And they're all around this table and it's like bottles of Crown Royal and calamari and the marinara sauce. And my Nana's over there, my uncle Manny's over there, my father's over there, everybody's doing their thing. And all of a sudden I hear like ding, 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 ding. My Uncle Manny's like, hey, assholes, shut up. So everybody gets quiet. And he's like, a toast. Everybody's got their booze, right? And he goes, to Paul Caravo, may that cocksucker rot in hell. Salute. And everybody cheers. And it's in that moment when I realize I don't feel the same way that they feel mm. because it occurred to me when I came in the door and I was looking at the tree and the lights and the food. And I'm thinking, what kind of a night is his family having? Yeah. Cause I knew Carvo had little kids and he had a wife, his second wife, but he had a wife. So he had, he had kids who are probably around our age, but he also had little, little kids with his new wife. He was somebody's son. He was somebody's brother. He was somebody's dad. He was somebody's something. And I just thought like, ah, and I could not join them in their joy. Like even right now, I still get emotional about it. It's like, I could not. Wasn't this like five years? You kind of like only five years after her murder. I was seven. So I was 18 and he, it happened when I was 12 and a half. So yeah. That is a remarkable depth of compassion from you just that closely removed from that horrible crime committed against your mother and your family. I, I, I'm, I'm stunned at the degree of compassion that showed in your, hold on, I, my, I can smell my sauce. I got to go. Yeah. Go, go, go stir your sauce. I'm going to pause it. I'll be right back. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, so, so I just, I just remember feeling like, I just remember thinking about like his little, little kids and it just hurt my heart, you know, and 
I walk around the corner and my Nana sees me, my little Nana with the white hair and the tissue up her sleeve, you know, and she comes up to me and she puts her little hands up on my face and she says, now, isn't this the greatest Christmas present you could ever get? Hmm. And it's just like, like hitting me again, like, ah, and I, and the reason why I'm telling this story is it was in that crack. It was in that moment when I stopped seeing him and that one tone of color, that one note, right? It's when I realized like, oh, he's not some monster. Right. What he did was monstrous, but he's not a monster. He is a deeply flawed and fucked up human being. And he was also somebody's dad. And so there was, there was room, that crack, it's where the light gets in, that wound, it's where the light gets in. And there was a moment of possibility for me to rewrite the story, the, the meaning that I had assigned to him and the whole thing. And that was the beginning. Like that was the beginning of the forgiveness process is when I had a willingness to be curious about him. Like what would have had to have happened to this person that that was a good idea? Like that, that, that murdering somebody, beating somebody to death was possible. And so that curiosity was the thing. It was my golden ticket, man. Yeah, and you and I have talked about this with your writing and, and about writing in general. I discovered long ago that I, I think I think that not only is curiosity the 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 purest fuel for empathy in the way you just described, mm -hmm. but it's also I think I think our most helpful fuel is writers. Whether you're writing from the point of view of the younger you in your memoir or personal essay, or you're trying to enter into the experience of someone you'll never be in a novel. Um, to me, it's all about that. And when you back, so you're talking about Leonard Cohen and his wisdom and his work. You know, one of my favorite lines from Tom Waits, that's about the same kind of thing, is from his song, Heart Attack and Vine, and it's, you know, there is no devil, there's just God when he's drunk. And I, and I love that. I mean, that's blasphemy to some ears. What do you mean God's drunk? Well, no, if you look at the word to pervert, the word to pervert from Latin actually means to turn away from. Mm-hmm. So what's a pervert turning away from? The light in him. Well, so I always say to people, no matter what you're doing, you're either running towards or away from God. And with, again, oh. I don't think of God as like a white dude in a robe. It's whatever you want to call it, perfect love, the light that is, right? Whatever, I don't, I don't get hung up on it. You know? The better angels of your nature, to paraphrase, you know, just the better you that can be. A hundred percent. And what are the every day every day's a battle for us in that way. Am I going towards or away? And but you know, I heard a wonderful interview with Tobias Wolf, the great uh, short yes. story and memoirist uh, Tobias Wolf, and he talked about being a pathological liar as a boy. And I think it was Terry Gross in NPR said, "Well, what was that like?" He said, "Oh, how did you get? How did you stop?" He said, "I stopped because I." I began to feel that every time I lied, it subtracted from me. And I love that. I've never forgotten that word choice that, you know, those, those parts of us we're proud of add to us. And self-destructive behavior, you know, whatever behavior is that, that is not going towards light but darkness subtracts from us in a total sense. And it's really interesting. And, and you know, as a creative writer all these years, I've, I, I tend to be drawn towards people who fuck up royally. Yeah, me too. <laughs> somebody, so a bookseller in the West Coast said, when he introduced me, I, I don't know if I liked it 
I don't know if I like the introduction when he gave it, but I've been thinking about it a lot. I think he's right on. He said, yeah, Debussy's characters get dealt bad cards and then pay, play them badly. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating, though. Like, one of the things about in Curiosity, and I want to touch on this because, you know, I started, the, I started the show talking about how you're one of my favorite people, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> there's a reason for that. And one of them, I think, is your curiosity, which I'm going to come back to in a second. But I feel like, you know, I'm not interested in people who um, are experts at the, I'm fascinated by people who have mastery of some sort of skills, especially when it's shit that like I can't do, right? Like that's why like one time you said, I thanked you. I'm like, thank you so much for coming to see my sweetie at his Doc Desert Eagle show, right? The music show. And you said, well, my favorite part was watching you watch him. Because I have this look on my face when I watch him, and it's because. And by the way, kick-ass guitarist, man. I still remember that. Yeah, he's show. incredible. But that's just it. Like he has a skill set that I'm just like I don't even know how he can do that. And it could be this. It could be the littlest thing. I'm not even. I'm not. Not to say that juggling is a little thing. But if you have mastery of something that I can't do, there's a part of me that's just kind of in wonder. The little kid in me loves that, right? It loves to like kind of bear witness, um, and so. I'm not interested, though, in the person who's interested in being the smartest one in the room, right? I'm not interested in the one who shows up with their cup already full. Like, you, you can't pour into something. I always say it's really hard to be full of God. But I could even say it's really hard to be full of curiosity when you're already full of shit, when, like, you already think you know everything. And you kind of show up, I think, again, one of the reasons why I adore you is you show up with Either you are a brilliant actor and you've pulled the wool completely over my eyes, which I don't think you have, but you have a genuineness of curiosity about people. And I have met many talented writers in, in my lifetime who were brilliant on the page, but you could not pay me to hang out with them mm. because I immediately felt their fill in the blank. I could feel, let's say I could feel their judgment or their lack of interest or if they couldn't get something from me or I wasn't, I was kind of a nobody or whatever. And that's not me taking things personally. I can tell when somebody like gives a shit if I'm standing next to them or whatever. Right. You, I have watched you long enough and, and like you have taught me so much about not even like Yes, you've taught me craft things, of course, like, you know, the five senses, uh, you know, concrete specific details of the instruments by which we steer. Like there's all these, you know, just like you, I collect, I have like a quote bank in there, a Rolodex, but <laughs> and you've taught me so much about being um, a writer, but mostly by paying attention to my intuition, being curious, right? Like talking to me about when we write, we're more in the dream state, like those kinds of things. And you've taught me how to be a better human being um, just by the way that you meet people and greet people. And when, when there's a line um, for book signings, you are so open and, um, and I'm sure you reserve a certain amount of privacy. I'm not saying you're just like, oh, you know, whatever. But you, you are genuinely curious about people. You ask them questions. One of the first things you almost ask everybody is, so what are you writing? How's your writing? What's going on with you? But it seems like you actually mean it. So can you kind of talk about that? Like, like, are you as fascinated by people? And is they, who, I don't know who said it. We have to be 
we have to mull into muse um why man does what he wa does is that Faulkner who said that Faulkner, that's Faulkner, and, and it has to do with, it has to do with curiosity he was asked late in his life what's the main thing a writer needs he said i used to think it was talent but i don't anymore he said i think it's curiosity and his exact phrase was insight to wonder to mull and to muse why it is that man does what he does and if you have that, Tom makes no difference or not. Hold on. Um, I have to be compassionate to my dog who's whining. He's getting uh, very old. You know how I feel about him. Well, I got to go let my dog out. I'll yes, be right please do. <laughs> be right back. Yep. Bother you? He's going to be barking for a while. No, it doesn't matter. I don't care. All right. Um, real life. This is real life. <laughs> this is so real life. So let me get to your – look, I don't know. Uh, the truth is – my brother, Jeb, is a genius, like really a genius, you know. Tom's I've met him. He's wicked smart in, in lots of ways. You know, classical guitar when he was 13 by listening to records. I mean, just crazy smart, gifted. And he's, he's one of these rare people who's as interested in science and math as he is in people and places. And I mean, maybe that's not rare, but it's rare. All I can say is when he goes on about string theory and mathematics, science my eyes glaze over and I, I can hardly stay awake until he starts to tell a story with people in it I, I just not interested and now I love that science exists I know if, by the way if, if we pay attention to it it might get us out of this pandemic truth. yeah no um, but I unless there's a human being in the story I have no I just fall asleep I I am deeply interested in human beings. I, I have never stopped being interested in other people's stories and um, how they live and how they don't live and where they come from and where they're going. I just, and, and one of the things I, I, I really, really love about humanity is the diversity of culture and ethnic origin and religion or lack thereof. I love how, how we can all be from such different places but have such common humanity and so which i would say that's the divine but that's the thing like that's the divine spark that lives within all of us and i think i agree i think it's fascinating that we we love to focus on what makes us different and if we spent more time like focusing on the the, the thing the thing that that golden thread that runs from your heart to my heart to somebody else's heart and and i was i was thinking about like exactly what you're just saying. I'm the same way. Like I am a very, when I'm watching a show like, or watch it, cause I, I love, as a storyteller, I, I love movies too. Like a lot of, a lot of spiritual people are very proud of the fact that they don't own TVs, you know, and stuff. And I'm always like, do, do hold you on, I'm talking about Love you. See you. Love you. I'll see you tonight. Love you, Fontaine. <laughs> so, um, I'm very character driven too. I want to get into the meat of who is this person? What's their problem? What are they doing to help me to understand why he's doing that? Like, let me, if I don't, here's one of the worst things I always say, like, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. I remember listening one time to, I don't know if it was a story, a show. I can't remember if I read it, but it, I, I'm a reader who has cinematic vision, right? So I think very kind of cinematically. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and by the way, you write cinematically. Oh, well, I've had good teachers, huh? Mm -hmm. Huh? 
So uh, one of the things that I remember this guy, so it was like this story and there were these two characters and it was like these two guys who were each other's nemesis, right? They couldn't stand each other. And so they were all like one, so this one guy is getting interviewed and they ask him. So let's just call them like Joe and Bob, right? Or whatever. And they asked Joe, so what do you think about Bob? And Joe says, I don't. I don't think about Bob. And I just thought, oh, like that is one of the, here's what I always say to people. If I love you or I hate you, I'm still engaged. You know you're in trouble when I go numb about, like when I just don't have a feeling one way or the other, when I'm like. Well, which is the opposite of love, right? Exactly. It's, it's apathy, right? You know, we don't hate people we don't still love or have some pain with. And so. You know, I, I read a, the, the in, uh, introduction to a book of personal essays a few years ago. I think I'm pretty sure it was the master essayist, Philip Lopate. He said, if, he said by, by all means, whatever you do, and he's talking about writing about your life yeah. and, you, and your experience directly with prose. He said, you must avoid the stench of the ego. <laughs> and I love that phrase, but I think it's a way to live your life. We must avoid the stench of the ego. And there's a great line from Flannery O'Connor, which I will butcher if I even try to quote her, but it has to do with something like the, ah, uh, oh, no art is sunk in the self. Um, she goes on to say, in, basically, to paraphrase, she said, in order to, to see clearly, you must let go of the self. She says it much more poetically than that. Well, I think, sorry, go ahead. But my point is, the irony is, though, but what if you're writing deeply about yourself? What if you're writing deeply as you are in your memoir, as I tried to do in, in my memoir, Tony? Um, w what happens then? Well, here's to what you are saying earlier. I think the deeper you go, there is no other. There is no other. You know, I'm a white middle-aged man, but, you know, I have felt more like myself reading from the point of view of a black girl living her life before I was born. I, I felt parts of my humanity come to life reading from the point of view of, a, of an old Jewish rabbi a thousand years before my birth. I've, you know, I think about Tolstoy's definition of art. Art is transferring feeling from one heart to another. Well, what, what's going to transfer feeling? Truth, 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 and nothing but truth. Well, because especially mass holes too, I think we have a particular, not, and I don't think it's just like East Coast kids, but I think we have a very powerful, a super sniffer to bullshit. So we can feel it. Like, it's almost like I can feel it in my body. Like the alarms are going off. And I, and I, you know, sometimes my sweetie and I are watching a show and as a musician, he finds it repulsive. Like he actually gets, he gets mad when we're watching something and he said they're being lazy and they're using the music, the sweeping music to try to manipulate me into feeling something. And he's like, if they did their job, we would feel, I'm like, yeah, we'd feel it from the writing and the acting or whatever, right? And so it's really, it's really work fascinating. Speaks for itself, don't interrupt. Remember Sorry? that? If your work speaks for itself, don't interrupt. Yeah, well, so this, dude, whenever I talk to you, I literally wish, I'm like, I need a whiteboard so I can like write my thoughts down. Oh, like, shucks. The seven, Seven places, Dubis, <laughs> that, that I want to... Oh, I, no, 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 no. Just, just um, that I think authenticity, right? Like that thing about truth, truthiness. And I'm like, we want the truth. And I think it might have been you that told me 
yeah. that even what we want to write, even when we're writing personal story, there's a university universality to it, which is like that what the reader is really saying, you, I think this was you that told me this show me, me. Yeah. Like we want to recognize and identify ourselves. And it's what's so funny. Cause I really want to dive into this cause I'm fascinated. And it's a little like, I'm just like, I'm pivoting really quickly. But so I feel like I have like, like you have a Rolodex of all these other people's quotes. Like I have a Rolodex of your quotes and I want to talk about this for a second, but I want to start by saying something. So the work that I do is a spiritual mentor. The overarching name of it is called fearless flow. And I think being in the flow state as a writer in the creative, creative, like when you're in creativity, that, that to me is divine flow. Um, uh, it's also a way to move through the world, right? To be in the fearless flow. And the process that I use is called your story to your glory. But when people say to me, like, what's fearless flow? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to break it down to you with these five different quotes. And I've never told you this, but Ooh. one of your quotes is one of the things that I always share with my clients. Ooh. Let me preface it by saying this, you're going to claim it's not your quote. And then I'm going to challenge you to go on the internet and find where it says anybody else has ever said it except for you. Because you once said to me, it's like a, I don't know, Chinese proverb, it's something. And I'm like, I'm like, I have never been, I have looked, I have actually spent a couple of hours going, I'm going to find the origin of this, but every Google search ever is quoted is coming from you. And I'm going to show the people at home, right? I made a graphic. I even made a whole meme about it, right? So here it is. If the mad dog comes at you, whistle for him. Oh, wow. I love the image you came up with. Oh, it's scary. Ooh. Well, it's not, but look at. Well, let me talk about it, though. So you talk about fearless flow? Yeah, but I'm talking, I think part of, part of the fearlessness is a willingness to be vulnerable, to be honest, to feel deeply, to fuck up to say, I'm sorry, to say, I love you, to forgive. It's like part of the whole thing. It's not just like, I love this because it's this thing of like, and why I use it is this whole concept of knowing who walks beside you, knowing that there is something greater than you within you and beside you that walks with you. So you can move like, so I always have this image, right? Like I see that dog coming across that bridge. There's nowhere to go. I'm on the bridge. And I'm like, I always think of it like this, like such a mass hole kid, like, fuck it, I'm here, let's go, right? And I'm like, let's, let's go. go, let's go, right? So, but I want to talk, you can, you can talk about that quote, but then I want to talk about quotes in general and how you've amassed. You just brought back such memories of where we grew up. Fuck yeah, go ahead. It, let's go, but go ahead. Yeah, no, no, it is, right? But it's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to turn away? And there's, it's fascinating. Have you watched the show Kingdom? Have you seen the show Kingdom yet? I don't think so. Have I? Remind me. All right. It came out in 2013 and ended in 2017. It was on some obscure channel, but it just became available on uh, Netflix. Okay. And it is all about an MMA gym. It's all about these fighters. And one of the head actors is a guy named Jonathan Tucker. He's one of my favorite actors. He's from Boston, uh, even though in this film, they're all from Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. But it is fascinating. And I think of you so often and the acting is so, but it's dark, like it's hardcore. It's about fucked up fighters. And I'm like, oh, I think 83 will dig this, but I'm just giving you that. But my point being is that 
if you want to talk about this in particular, is that what you wanted to talk about? This this quote. Well, I want to talk about the notion of fearless flow because I mean, I I mean, I think that we can get there. But for me, like I was just thinking about my writing session today. You know, I have this whole uh, ritual. I'm sure most writers do of what I need to do to to get where I need to get to dream, and 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 I always try to get to an egoless place. I try to get to a place with no agenda. And I try to get to a place where I'm just receiving it, which, which can be very naked. I mean, it's a very emotionally naked place to be, as you know. And, but I gotta, I gotta step through a bunch of fears to get there. You know, I think about our friend Dennis Lehane, you know, he said once in in a talk, he said, people ask me, well, how come you've gone on to write books when your buddies you were writing with when you were young stopped? He said, I don't know. I, I think it's fear, fear management. I learned every morning to manage my fear. I think every writer to that, to some extent, does manage the fear, but then you got to step into it. And then when you do step into it, when you whistle for the mad dog, it actually disappears. It actually becomes something else. And so, and maybe it is a fearless flow. All right, so I'm contradicting myself. I was about to say, I don't know, it feels like a fearful flow f- for me, but you step into it anyway. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back. And, this, and, you know, I hate to bring in this metaphor. But in the same, like, you know, I, I talked about, right, you, rip, you know, we're talking about Townie. So that membrane around everybody, that this should be sacrosanct, right? You know, every human being has this invisible and actually, since I wrote about this, a psychologist has told me it's actually called a kinosphere. Yeah, that, kinetic, right? a kinetic spheric energy like yeah. around you. Where I have no right to reach over and, you know, touch someone I don't know. It's a violation of their privacy unless they give me permission. You know, when, when two adults are consenting to make love, they're, they're both dropping their membranes to merge. But when you punch someone as hard as you can in the face, what a violation of that that membrane that's that's mm. part of the face around someone that's invisible but you can sense right we all know when we're staying too close to someone we don't know well if if you're healthy and you've got a right. fucking yes. and we all know when someone's standing too close to us yes. uh what's my point my point is that writing uh with fear and then it did it felt a lot like Stepping into a fight is terrifying, and then when you're fighting, it's not terrifying, unless, okay. you're, unless you're about to get beaten to death, and, so, and it does feel that way. Avi, Avi, who's one, Alvi, who is like one of the main, the owner of the gym. He's like the dad, and his son's fighting like this whole thing. In the show. Yep. They say, "What's the what's the most terrifying thing?" And he said, "Right before you go in the cage." Right before. And he goes, "Once you're in the cage." You're in the cage, like it all, like, and I, I, that's what I think about. Now, when I talk about fearless flow, what I say to people is they'll say, so you teach me how to never have fear again. And I said, no, 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 no. A certain amount of fear is healthy because it keeps you from doing stupid shit. (laughs) I said, but I'm talking about when we, when we, the way I use it in spiritual mentoring, I think I always say same is different, like same is different, but it's kind of like you, um, it's not that we never have fear again. It's how quickly we recognize we've taken a detour into fear and we're back and we come back. It's like returning to our right mind again and again and again. Okay. And I think too, a lot about the two words, the reaction versus responding. 
A hundred percent. I just did my, my, my episode, my podcast episode uh, was about that was last week. <laughs> wow. I'm going to go watch it. So, I mean, when, when I look back, um, which I don't do very often, but I look back at what I've written over the years, I see that there's so many themes of reacting versus responding, especially with male characters where they get a bad feeling and they, they react either with violence or drinking too much or loveless sex with a fucking stranger, you know, typical self-destructive behaviors. And um, one of the things that, I, that I've tried to teach myself over the years, or, or maybe I'm not teaching myself at all, maybe the world's teaching me is, but I have learned a profound difference. There is a profound difference between stepping into fear, feeling it, and then freaking out and reacting, or stepping into it and sitting with it, and then responding. And every day writing asks me to do B. You know, every day I step, you know, and the fears are myriad. One is, holy shit, will I be able to pull this off? And you're building a novel. I mean, writing a four, five, six hundred page or longer novel feels like building a deck of a house of cards over many years. And the windows open a little bit and a breeze could come in. And every day you don't know if you're going to actually get another floor out. Will you actually be able to, is another card going to come? And another and another. And it takes a great leap of faith into the unknown. One of my favorite lines from some ancient Chinese poet, we poets knock upon the silence for an answering music. But when you step into that kind of fear every morning the way I try to in my writing cave, and I know you do too, Karen, there's, um, you're, you're totally right. It does become a fearless flow, just like a fight. I mean, I hate to bring in the violent metaphor because I don't fight anymore and I hope to never be in a fight again. But even though I still know how, and even though, even though that ability has never left my body, there's, there, there is something that, and again, back to this notion of divinity and something larger inside of us. You know, there's a great line from, from D.H. Lawrence. It is not I who writes, but the wind that blows. Through. Oh, right? I know, it's one of my favorites. Yes, and, and I, you know, you, you know, you've heard me teach writing uh, ad nauseum, but it took me years before I began to say in front of a, a group of creative writers, I think there's a difference between making it up on the one hand and imagining it on the other. Anybody can throw together a story, but are you are you allowing this story that's knocking on your brain pan and no one else's to come? And I do believe that these characters are sacred beings from the cosmos who choose us the way we choose our own parents. And and you know, this sounds a little new aging out there, but I do believe we have a sacred obligation to bring these stories to light once they've gotten inside of us. Dude, I, 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 we call it, so in A Course in Miracles, we call it, it's a, there's an individual curriculum. There's a divine assignment that is only yours. Mm -hmm. And I said, you, you know, I, like when I think back to, you know, oh, the golden gloves and, you know, you get the whisper or the thing or the intuition or the instinct, you know, I got to, even if it's conscious or non, not conscious, it's subconscious or unconscious where you decide to sit down and write at that little table next to the radiator, the tea, the whole thing. But you started to write about a girl in Maine on the hood of a car, losing the virgin. I have never, it has never occurred to me, right? Like meaning if I go to write, it's always personal essay, memoir-ish, from what I know, from what I've seen, from what I've felt. Like, I did not get the assignment novelist, uh, like, fiction writer. Like, that's, like, I would laugh when I go to, um, when I was learning to become a gateless uh, writing uh, facilitator, instructor, teacher, whatever you want to call it. 
there was always this point where somebody would lead the salon that night. And whenever the like fiction person would lead the salon, all the memoirists would be like, oh God, you're gonna ask us to like create a story, a fiction story. And, and then when, when the, the memoirist would say to them like, all right, we got to write from real life. They're like, oh God, don't make me do that. I don't know how you guys do that. It freaks me out. And then all the memoirs want to do is they want to talk about what's happened. And, all, you know. and of course, this, we could talk about how fiction is. So even when I write fiction, right, I've tried to, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day I can write a short story. But even the quote unquote characters I try to write uh, as a fiction story, like I've, I've attempted this a couple of times now, they still sound like the people we grew up with. Like, remember when I played you that tape down in Florida at the Eckerd conference yeah. and you listened to my, my stepfather talking and you said, oh, I know that guy. Oh yeah. All my characters, like I have no idea how you write as a dude, right? Uh, I shouldn't say I have no idea. I do, I do have the gift of being able in my day-to-day -day life to put myself in other people's shoes. I think that's why I can be compassionate, right? Why I can show up without judgment. I can deeply, be curious. Deeply compassionate. Speaking of compassionate, I got to let my whining dog out yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, please. He's in pain these days. He's very old. Well, be, what a, well, I mean, he's going to... I'm just going to let him out. He, right, he, yeah. Let him back in. I'll be right back. All right. And we're back. Sorry, KK. I'm it's okay. Back. Don't be sorry. Okay. You, gotta, I, you know me. I'm all for the animals. I'm like, take care of your pup. All for the animals. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I just find it fascinating how your first instinct was to write from somebody else's point of view, where I sometimes feel like um, my... Uh, like, even when I'm teaching, like, I'll start to say something, then I correct myself and I'll say... You know, I can only teach from my own experience. I can only really, truly speak from my own experience. And I can relay, sure, what somebody else who told me who had a fill in the blank, had a miscarriage, an abortion, whatever. I can only speak of experiences that I've had with any kind of authority and agency. Right. But I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing how fiction writers can really embody these other beings. And I, here's what I will say, though. I think it's possible because something divine, something spiritual you know, is moving through you to assist because I believe, you know how, um, so Tim O'Brien has that quote where he says, writers tend to be the kind of people that like to enter into the mystery of things. Yeah. And I think that's what we're doing when we sit down to write. We're making a pact, right? We're like, kind of like, you know, pinky swearing and like cutting the thing in the blood pact and saying, okay, I'm here to receive. And Ravadrana Tagore has this beautiful quote that he says, um, Everything that belongs to you will come to you if you create the capacity to receive it. Yeah. And I think that's what we're doing when we're sitting down. We're saying, okay, this story that's knocking, because, because your stories came for you. I'm the steward of the stories that have, I guess, happened to me or came to me. I, when I love the word choice you just used a few minutes ago. You said the assignment I got, meaning you, Karen, the assignment you got was to write more derivatively from your life experience. And, and I think you're nailing something. I think, I th first, I think every writer should try every kind of form. I mean, you don't know what might be your truest form. And, and, and there are a lot of writers who can do two or three very well. Um, you're one of them. Well. I've received the compliment. It's true. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I do deflect those things. Uh, 
But thank you. I think about Robert Penn Warren, uh, poetry and fiction. I think about a, a lot of poets. Dennis Johnson was a beautiful poet and a prose writer, on and on. Uh, there are so many examples. But I do think that we should all try various forms. I mean, I never ever thought a memoir would come out of me, but I'm glad I wrote it. And um, I've written a bunch of essays. My point, though, is ah, there's a wonderful line from a friend of mine I've probably told you about. He got uh, into Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. He was like one of three of 1,500 American applicants to get in that year. And, you know, he does the whole master's program and he does his thesis performance, like a Shakespeare play. And his, his teacher's like some really big, famous Shakespearean actor. And he, he goes, he goes to my, my buddy's dressing room and says, you know, Paul, I won't do the accent. He says, you know, Paul, <laughs> that was good, but it wasn't great. And Paul said, what do you mean? I, I worked my ass off. I did everything but teaching me. I won't do the accent, but he said to Paul, he said, I don't know what to tell you. It's just none of us are one note. We are all a symphony. And amen, amen, and amen to that. You know, I think about, you know, both as human beings, but also as writers. Who knows what our form is? But also some of us know pretty quickly what it is. And um, I think about William Stafford, the poet. He said, the poet before writing must put himself or herself into a state of openness or receptivity. Mm. Receptivity, which you've been talking about. And he, but he has a wonderful litmus test for in this essay that he wrote about what it is. He says, it's one, you know you're being receptive when you're willing to accept anything that comes, no matter what it is. Yes. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Well, because sometimes we don't want to write about like that. We don't yeah. want to write about the thing that we've been trying to hide from duck, drop and roll, you know, whatever. Like, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, that fucking thing. I'm not ready for that. You know, I don't want to write about that. So it's all about control and letting go of control. And the truth is, look, um, you know, I'm sitting in this house that I built with my bare hands, but I still have a mortgage and I better control my day to make the daily bread to pay my monthlies. Not we all have these these responsibilities and duties hanging over our heads and we all have to control our day to get our responsibilities met. And yet the writing then asks when, you know, all those qualities that make you a good responsible citizen to let go of them completely when you sit down at the desk and let go of control. Easier said than done. But I love this next part from Stafford about receptivity. He said, you also know you're being receptive when you're willing to accept anything that comes, one, and two, and this is downright un-American because we're not trying to be this way, you are willing to fail. Like you're truly willing to fail at this. Oh, man, we're not taught that. We don't get out of bed to be a loser all day. We get out to be winners. Well, didn't you, yeah, but didn't you, when you wrote, I think it was gone so long. I love doing these little plugs for your books. I feel like Vanna White right now. Um, when you wrote this, didn't you hit a point, I remember, when you said, I had to throw like 400, 300, five, I don't know how many pages, it was painful, 200 pages out. Was it that book? About 190 pages, about 14 months of work. Oh, but but I've, I've, I've done that for probably three or four other books over these 30-something years. Yeah, man, I mean, that's what Faulkner meant when he said you have to murder your darlings. But again, it comes back to truth because, so in that, in the case of that book, as you know, as you know, and the irony is I started writing that novel before we met, but that woman in that story has a similar scenario to yours, uh, which is that... Uh, 
her father, well, in your father didn't kill your mother, but in this case, the in the yes. novel, yeah. father kills the mother of my one of my, my characters in that novel, gone so long when she was three. And so now she's in her 40s and she's an aspiring writer. It, she hasn't quite found her voice, found her way. But for almost a year and a half of writing, Karen, she wasn't a writer. She was an actor. I had whole fucking scenes in L.A. and Hollywood. <laughs> I've had some, some run-ins with these Hollywood <laughs> criminals. I've, uh, not criminals, you know, some of them are for yeah. sure. Um, I, I was dying to write a Hollywood novel, and there's all this stuff about acting. I used to act, so I was, oh, my God, I get to write about acting. But that built-in shockproof shit detector that Hemingway writes about went off all the time, and I finally accepted it that, oh, this is such bullshit. You, <laughs> she, she told you on page nine that she was an aspiring writer, and you just don't want to write about writing. So you wrote what you wanted to for a year, and guess what? It's all bullshit. you got to cut every bit of it. Yeah, you were manhandling it, right? Like it was like, I'm gonna write, I don't want, I want it to be what it is. And the story like, so we say in trauma, right? We say in trauma work, like, oh, I say in trauma work, like the body has its own memory to tell, right? It's just like how, like, it's like, you. who said, um, story, is it story has its own memory yeah, to tell? Tobias Wolf in this boy's life, his memoir, he said, memory has its own story to yeah. tell. Like you and, I, you and I can be brother and sister, right? We have different parents just because you're a female, I'm a male, just because we're 10 years between us. I'm 10 years older, clearly. And we have different, just, you know, your bedroom's across the hall. Mine's on the other side. Totally different. Yeah. Can we dive into that a little bit? Because I know for sure that this is something that a lot of writers struggle with. And I know that I find it fascinating. You know, my sister got mad at me one time. She read something that I wrote. Um, I can't remember for the life of me what it was. This isn't, and this isn't me bagging on my sister. It's just to make this point. And I remember she put the paper down and she, I could tell she was pissed. And I was like, what? And she's like, it's not fair. And she says, it's not just your story. It's also my story and Ma's story. And I said, well, then you can write your own version of the events. I wasn't trying to be a dick, but I was like, if I, if I sit here and worry about and, and we can kind of maybe tap into the difference between emotional truth and factual, factual, like, you know, we don't want to make shit up as memoirists or whatever, but um, it's like, because of that slight age difference, because of where we were as I, as a naive 12 year old and her is a little bit smarter, 13 going on 14 year olds, those 18 months made a difference. And the way that she um, related with my mother and my stepfather, the way that I related to the world, was different. And I think so many people are afraid. I think you and Melanie talked about this in um, writing hard stories because you were asking her about her own writing and, and you asked her, do you have any siblings? And she said, yeah, I have three brothers. And then you started to go, yeah, Melanie, but that's not how, right? And she's like, I know that's it. Like I get paralyzed that somebody else is going to say that's not how it really happened. Let me speak to that. Yeah. And how it really happened. Well, what the hell's really, everyone's got their own. I want to talk about truth and facts, but I also want to make this very clear, hopefully clear point. Whenever anybody sets out to write a personal essay or a memoir from, the, from their perspective, from their deeply subjective emotional memory of what they remember happened, which may not be what exactly happened, but that's their memory of it, which, which, by the way, Freud, let's go back to Freud for a second. Freud was a pioneer not so much because he was, str strangely enough, one of the very first to think that 
an adult's childhood was significant and how the adult turned out. He was less interested in what happened to the child and more interested in what the adult remembered happened to him or her. He thought that was much more revealing than what actually happened. I want to get to the facts versus truth. Here's the point I want to make. Please, anyone out there writing a memoir, it is not your job to be the family's biographer. Mm. That's not what a memoirist is. You yeah. are family's biographer you are trying to sing your quiet little song from your part of the string section you are not the conductor you're not the biographer you're not the autobiographer you are just saying this is how i remember it was for me facts versus truth two friends of my well they're relatives but i know this story i love this story tell it so these two sisters they're from a family of they're, they're close to me larger family two sisters from a family of five daughters, they lose their dad. Their dad, uh, I'll just say he was one of my uncles. These are some, some cousins. And um, one, of the, one of the sisters says to the other one, well, I just don't think dad loved, loved us at all. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in the room and I'm listening and I'm actually doing dishes. I just cooked him dinner. And I began to think about my uncle. And I know he was famous for working 80 to 100 hours a week in his own little business that he um, put all five daughters through expensive schools, was putting the older two through grad school. He drops dead of a heart attack at age 53. I'd be willing to bet one of my limbs that if my uncle heard that, he'd sit up and say, how can you say that? How can you say that I didn't love you? Of course I loved you girls. Except the woman who said that never saw dad at breakfast, never saw him at lunch, never saw him at dinner, never saw him at bedtime, never saw him uh, you know, at a game or at a, at a, you know, a recital or anything. Recital. Never, never had pancakes with him on Saturday morning. And, and, you know, on Sunday, uh, instead of going to church with his family, he'd take a little time in golf. My friend was actually 180 degrees wrong. Of course, dad loved her. But the truth is she felt unloved. The facts are, of course, he loved her. The truth is she did not feel loved. Mm -hmm. just some shadow figure who wrote checks and that is the province of the memoir that is the province of art don't forget journalism is about information what we do is about experience journalism is about recording what we do is capturing journalism especially now damn it should be about the facts but what we do is about the truth right you know, I know that my father loved me. On one level, I know that he loved me, but I didn't feel loved by him as a kid. He wasn't around. I hate to say it out loud, but that's all through my accidental memoir, Townie, too. So, I, I have so many, so many directions I could go in with this. Uh, one thing I want to say to people who are listening is that um, if you are loving what Andre is saying right now, you know, he's teaching an online workshop in October at Maine Media Workshop online which um p.s surprise i signed up for so i'm wicked excited oh, good it's Excellent. my birthday present to myself by the way so well um, so those of you who are listening if you can i always say if you can hear the sound of my voice uh google that shit but um one of the things i wanted to talk about is this thing because you know i've 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 been present when you've been being interviewed i've read a lot of your interviews and there's certain places where I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard you be asked um, this question, so I'm going to ask it. I, I just want to preface it and say that, like, you were just talking about that, about, like, 
your dad, right? And um, I remember being at the Newburyport Literary Festival, being in that, the, I think it's a South Congregational Church. I'm not sure which one it is. It's the big white one. There's the pulpit and you're up there. And I remember you got up one year. It was one year, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were reading an essay or something about or to your daughter. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in the pews with Kath and watching you read this story and like, you're crying, I'm crying, Kath's crying, like everybody's crying <laughs> because the feeling and the depth of feeling that you spoke, like your love, like I'm getting emotional right now remembering it. Your love for your daughter was is palpable. Like I could feel it. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, there's a reason I'm going to bring it back to your dad, but I, I thought I was thinking to myself, holy shit, like what would, who, how might it have been and who might I be if I had had a dad who loves me like that? And mm -hmm. I, I just remember it like hitting my body, like even now, like, like the emotions coming back up, like, oh my God. And then in the next thought, I thought, but I wouldn't be who I am right now if I had. Yeah. And so we love to blame or whatever our parents for what they didn't give us. But somewhere in that lack of whatever, another part of me grew and rose up and I became this version of myself. And I think about this with your dad too. And um, you know, in Townie, when you talk about, and that's how Townie came about, right? Like you're writing this, um, this essay or something on coaching your kids, your sons in baseball and realizing why was baseball absent from my own childhood? And you realize, cause my dad was missing and then holy shit. Now you're writing this memoir, right? This memoir, I think you call them memoirs. <laughs> And some woman says she hates memoirs. She calls them memoirs. Yeah. Memoirs. But so, but, but I don't think you would have been the beautiful being you are right now too, perhaps if your dad, like when well, we can't know, right? We can't know, but can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I want to talk about suffering. I want to talk about the value of suffering, not to be masochistic or sadistic. No, no, I agree. I agree. I, go ahead. Well, I do think that, that one of the, I, Americans, I don't know about other cultures. I grew up in this one. I, I think that we are understandably, understandably averse to suffering. Mm. We also look at it. I, I, the reason I say Americans, I think, I think we've you gotten. Can speak, you can speak very, <laughs> you don't have to. You don't so, have to. Here, I, I think that the American dream has done such a disservice to, to us ultimately. The idea that, you know, the, our job, and there's nothing wrong with parts of the American dream. You work hard. You achieve a little piece of dirty ground, to paraphrase a Springsteen song. You've got your little house and your picket fence. And nothing wrong. I, 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 I'm very grateful to be living in a house that's, that's mine, that I built, where I raised my kids. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of beauty to, you know, climbing that ladder of success. And, but what's, what, what I find so unfortunate about the American dream is that the shadow message is, is that unhappiness is you're a failure. Mm -hmm. If you're not happy, then you failed. If you're not successful, then you're a loser. If you're not, there's so much shadow to it. It's such a narrow way of looking at the world. And one thing that it blocks out is death and suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, just look at how we treat death. It's, it's, it's almost treated as if, you know, we talk quietly about it. And it's as if you lost the race if all of a sudden you drop dead. 
you know, and we, we sub out these very important uh, rituals to strangers, you know, funeral homes, to, to wrap our loved one's body, to dress it, to put it in a box, to dig the hole. So you know that my, my brother and I uh, built my father's coffin mm-hmm. and dug his grave. And, and doing those two things brought me so deeply into this incredible ritual. And, and the word ritual comes from the Latin ritus, and it means river. To, to step into rituals, to step into an ancient river. And frankly, I think it's where we are truly cleansed. So um, after being up all night building that coffin with my brother, uh, which is at once the mo- the, one of the most darkest moments of my life because my father dropped dead suddenly when he was about my age now, but also one of the most beautiful moments doing that with my brother for our father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come home, my wife and kids are still asleep, the kids are little, and I grab a, a, a novel off, off the shelf, and it's a Graham Greene novel. And the epigraph to the novel is from the French writer Leon Bloy. And the, and the quote is, man has places in his heart which do not yet exist. And into them enters suffering in order that they may have existence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say it again. Man has places in his heart which do not yet exist. And into them enters suffering in order that they may have existence. Uh, from, from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, mm-hmm. grief carves a crucible, right? This container for hot steel. Grief carves a crucible in which joy is held. A hundred percent. So the truth is, there is no, one reason that, you know, you talk about my, my love of people, the, the truth is I do have a genuine interest in human beings, but I also have a genuine daily joy in life. And I do think it's because it, it, was, a, it was a rough start. It was a scrappy start. To the, exactly. And, and I think um, I'm very comfortable with shadow. In fact, it's taken me years, and you and I have talked about this, it's taken me years to adjust to things not going horribly awry every day. Taking me years to adjust to the abundance of turning the ignition, the car starts right up, to open the fridge and having food in it, um, to uh, being able to write a check for my monthly bills and having enough in there. Mm-hmm. So I've got to scram, scramble, but it, it's not how we grew up. And so uh-huh. I'm still hardwired for scarcity and bad news, and I really work, right, to fucking let go of that. Dude, I, I hear you like on so many levels. My sweetie, you know, um, he hasn't been playing out. Like 2020 has just been fucking extra weird. It's a wicked yeah. weird world right now, right? But at one of his gigs recently, somebody came up to him and it's somebody who um, has either seen me online or listens to the podcast or whatever it is. And they said, they asked him, is she always like that? <laughs> and he's like, what? And they're like, like happy. Is she like always like that? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, it's not that she doesn't, like ever, it's not that like stuff doesn't come up, yeah. but like, it's that she doesn't have like bad days. I might have bad hours or bad moments where I'm, where I've stepped out of the fearless flow. And I often tell my, my clients, right. And I work with people who, you know, it's not people who are just like, Oh, what's my purpose? Not that that's not a big question to ask. Right. We, we all have like, well, it's my identity. Who am I? And why am I here? That's a big thing. But like, you know, one of my clients has uh, you know, her 13 year old daughter died you know, unexpectedly. It's a tragic. And, and I told her, I literally, Andre, last week on a call, I told her that exact thing about you and your brother building your, your father's coffin. And there was a reason why I told her that, which I'll circle back to in a second. But one of the things that I often tell my clients is uh, suffering is a wicked good teacher. 
until you get a better teacher. <laughs> so for many, many, many years, suffering taught me a lot, like valuable stuff, valuable stuff to like hit my knees, to like hit that place of, to be comfortable in, in to be comfortable in the un discomfort, to be able to <laughs> recognize and feel for other people's suffering. Like I wouldn't trade it for the world. I often say like losing my mother, how I did and when I did was one of the greatest gifts that she gave me in this, in this, grand theater, this great big classroom that we're having the experience in. It was a very powerful thing um, for me to have that experience when I did and how I did and all of that stuff because it's it's made me, and I don't know, it's just, I was already a sensitive kid, but it also, it, it just like fine-tuned me like an instrument. I don't know, it did something where I'm very sensitive to the world around me and I think as right as we have to be, right? Um, Henry James, you know, this is, I don't know if that you were the first person to ever say it to me, but you know, that great quote where he says, try to be the kind of person upon whom nothing is lost. Right. And I think that's, I think that's one of the things that I really try to do. I think one of the greatest ways that we show love is to pay attention. Yeah. And I think that when you were like sanding and cutting and hammering and paying attention to this coffin where your father's body was going to be laid to rest was an incredibly powerful thing. But, you know, this whole thing about just grief and death and, and how we as Americans deal with it, you know, what happened is before, like, when I look at cultures where there's really like the wailing, right? Like where the women are like wailing or in the tradition where they sit, Shabbat, is it, sh what is it sh when they sit around in the Jewish tradition for like th three or four days in black? Do you know, is Shabbat? Sh no, in my uh, they said she, Shiva. I think it's sitting Shiva, right? And and so for me, I think those big demonstrations of somebody we love has left their body. They haven't left us. They're always with us, but they've left this physical form, which is how we tend to connect with them. But back in American culture, we did used to have these rituals where the body would be in the living room and people would come and they would pray and they would do the, all the stuff. But then when the war started happening, so many young dead, so many young men in, in like the, then the women. So you got all these soldiers who are dying in mass. You have the women working in the factories and there was literally no time to do that. So that's why the shift happened in our culture, why we no longer grieve that way. And there wasn't time to wipe noses and snivel and feel sorry for ourselves because there was a fucking war and we had stuff to do. So people, that's why we have this mentality now, like this kind of been like passed down through the DNA now of grief culture, which is, you know, that's why people are trying to hurry you up. Like, are you over it yet? Like, get over it. Like, why are you still crying about this? Like this happened two years ago. You know, there was a study done by a psychiatric uh, entity of leading psychiatrists around the country, and it's, it's in a medical book now. And a friend of mine who lost her son when he was 17, uh, 15 years ago, and of course will never be over it, uh, was outraged because the, the, the psychiatric statement was, if your grief lasts more than two years after losing a loved one, it's pathological. And I say, fuck them. That's absolute bullshit. You know, um, look, it, it, pain lasts. Why? Because the love lasts. And um, no, I think you're onto something. A fun fact about the word, word living room. So back in the 1980 yes, Spanish flu, years ago, we would, you know, we would have the wake in the front parlor. But after hundreds and thousands had died, a young architect uh, 
was designing a house and he said, well, enough of associating the parlor with death. That's all we associate it with. Now I'm going to call for the room. Yeah. Since, since our last pandemic, we've been calling living rooms instead of parlors, living rooms. So it'd be more about life, but keep talking. We're, we keep circling back. I think to the thing, which is the glorious mystical symphony of it all, the dark and the light. And one cannot exist without the other. That's and right. a fiction taught me nothing over the last few decades I've been doing it. I mean, all my adult life, it's that, um, there is no other. There is no other. The deeper you go, we are one. And it is a gray mess down there. But it is full of love if you allow it. And, you know, I know that I tend to write dark stories and <laughs> stories and go to dark places. But, you know, I, I don't feel darkness when I'm writing them. I feel that I'm in the presence of some truth that can only get to something lighter. I, but, I think... Sorry, go ahead. No, just by going there. I, I agree. And, you know, it's so interesting. I want to, this is totally random because there are a couple of things I wanted to write down and ask you about because I've, I haven't had a chance to ask you the, the, a couple of these questions. So this might be a little rapid fire because I, at some point I got to let you go and stir the, the sauce and feed your family. So remember that time when I got to meet Oprah because you hooked me up? Remember that, that time? Remember that time when you, through a series of beautiful, well, first of all, your book, House of Sand and Fog, became an Oprah book club. That yeah. beautiful house that you live in that you built with your own hands with your brother is because you, you got the call like, hey, Oprah picked your thing and it made beautiful things possible. But do you remember when, first of all, like, that was like a bucket list moment for me and it never would have happened. My, my picture is like right back there. So it's basically like my mom, me and Marianne Williamson and then me and Oprah. Um, but Oprah, it happened because of you, you were the conduit for Oprah to happen, which I will eternally be grateful. But I remember um, just being amazed. Um, first of all, I thought it was beautiful. I want to give a nod to you for, you were supposed to interview her in that, in front of that crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And you, you know, you had your moment in the small private thing that I got to participate in, which was powerful and amazing, but you handed it over to the female. Is she the chancellor or the president of the school? She's our first uh, female leader of University of Massachusetts in 130 years. And I and she's a huge fan of Oprah's. And I thought, no, man, we are in the Me Too movement. Uh, it's a very important time for women and women's voices. About time. We don't need a man up there. We need two strong women up there. And I'm so glad. <sighs> Look. You, Wait, that's I'm, not even. Well, that wasn't even my question. I was just giving you a nod. But if you want to, if you want to talk about that. Before you get to your question, so you know we had Stephen King and Meryl Streep in that series, and and I remember, yes. but I remember especially after Streep came, I could feel a, like a palpable lift in the self-esteem of these kids on campus. You know, most of whom, many of whom, I think the majority of whom are first generation, first in their family go to college, right? Many of them who come from families where English isn't the first language, many of whom are taking five, six classes a semester and working 34, 40 hours a week at a job. Mm -hmm. so I love these kids. I grew up with kids like this. I will do anything for these kids. My point is, um, I especially saw the leap in self-esteem of my female students. Yeah. Uh, we might be somebody if Meryl Streep comes here. 
So anyway, that's why I wanted Jackie to be up there with Oprah, and she did a great job, and it was wonderful. So what's your question? So my question is, so we're there, and so we're sitting in a row, right? And it's like you down there. Um, I think it might have been Mary or your mom, and then it was like Fontaine next to me, and then like her brother, and like all these people in this row. So uh, like, I'm just like you, right? Like, yeah, I'm amazed that Oprah's up on stage, but everything that's happening when like you get mentioned, like I'm looking over at you, right? Like I'm fascinated, like what's happening. So there's this moment when Oprah is talking about how she ended up there. And she basically says something, I'm paraphrasing, but it's on point where she says, Andre Debuse writes good letter. <laughs> and she's talking about how you wrote to her and you asked her to come and that you were persistent and you she, she's like i need a reason to go there and the way you wrote about the students the whole thing you inspire oprah to finally come okay which is amazing in and of itself but then she says which you didn't know uh and again i'm gonna finally make my point in a second but she says and the letter was so good that it is now like in the Smithsonian along with like a childhood journal and some things. And I'm like, looking no, over no. at you. No, no, it wasn't that letter. And I, I did not know this. I, I, it was I, a thank you letter for the, but this is, yeah, this is, this is okay. So, th but this is my point, right? This is my point. So you had written her this letter after she picked your book as an Oprah club book club pick and you wrote a thank you note to her. And she, she's saying that it ended up in the Smithsonian because A, it was beautiful and amazing. But then she drops this little nugget on us, which is, and my mouth, I remember my mouth like hanging open. It takes a lot to surprise me nowadays. And she says, out of over all the years, out of all the book club picks, Andre was like, if not the only, one of the only people to write to me to say thank you. Yeah, I was surprised. Now, this goes back to the kid who puts on the suit jacket like in the room, right? Those of us, I think, who grew up having to earn it, having to, having to work hard, having to fucking whatever, like we have a level of gratitude sometimes. Like we're able to recognize like, hey, this deserves a little recognition or whatever. So I wanna ask you the question, first of all, I think the heartbeat of what I'm trying to get at is, how is it possible that supposedly all of these deep thinking, feeling fucking writers with a pen in their hand, it doesn't occur to them to say thank you? Like what, what do you think? Like, how is that possible that you are like one of the only people to, 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 to even think to do that? Yeah, I, I, boy, I'm flummoxed. I don't know, Karen. I, I love what you just said though about uh, you know, those of us, which is a massive amount of human beings across the world, especially outside of our country, our rich country, which we know is full of poverty, but that those of us who grew up with very little and um, whatever we got, we just had to scrape for. Uh, I hadn't thought about the connection between that and gratitude. till just now. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, you know, I taught at, at Harvard for uh, a, a semester as a uh, visiting professor, and, and nothing against Harvard or Harvard kids, but my students there were in the top 1% of their high schools. You know, some of them were scholarship kids from inner city neighborhoods, but for the most part, they were affluent kids from affluent families, yes. high-achieving families, high-achieving, hardworking kids. Yes. Um, why am I bringing them up? 
I felt that they were, and this is an un, this is a generalization. It doesn't sure, of course. That I worked with, but the vibe in the room was, I'm used to luminaries coming into my life, and I'm used to doors opening for me. And 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 it, I'll tell you that's that's the primary reason I teach it at UMass Lowell because these kids are not used to luminaries coming into their lives, and they're not used to doors opening for them. In fact, they're used to doors slamming on them. Amen. And they're used to parents having addiction problems and some are in prison and a lot of them have died and you know about that and they died young. And, and so to answer your question, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. It's not about like making the other recipients bad or wrong. I think it's like an attitude though. Like I, it, it, to this day, I still write handwritten thank you notes and, yeah. and I love getting snail mail. Like I love getting a note in the mail. And, and it could also be that as a kid who, like lost her quote unquote parents in a way, like being in a, in a way kind of like orphaned in a way. And those things that like, I remember my auntie Jan found a handwritten letter that my mother had written to her like when my mother was like 22 or 23 and she found it in this pocketbook that she had. And as an adult, like 30 years later, seeing my mother's handwriting was like, oh my God. Like it was like finding a magical treasure. And there's something about taking the time to write your penmanship, to, to fold it, to lick the envelope, to seal it, to stamp it, to go to the post, like however it gets there. There's something about that. Remember to, to pay attention is for me is one of the great ways that we show love. And, and it's not about, again, making other people feel bad or wrong. I was just blown away by that. You know, I, I think of the phrase, and, and again, I, I, you know, I know a handful of the other uh, writers who Oprah picked for a club, but and many, and many of them are, are dear friends, and I, I won't speak for any of them, and I don't, I don't know what. And it could also be, who am I to write to some big mogul? I mean, yeah, you can get it. But I want to talk about what you just described, which is, I think of the phrase, take care take care of yourself. What does it mean to take care of yourself? Well, you know, don't drink too much, you know, eat good food, get some exercise, try not to be too angry. I mean, don't smoke. I mean, all this stuff. <laughs> but what's it mean to care for others? What you just described with that one handwritten thank you note to whomever is such an act of care, of taking care of the relationship, of the person. And guess what? There's a bit of work to it. And, and one of the many things we've lost in the digital age is, is that sort of gesture that takes, that, you know, you got to work to show that level of care. So, so two things I want to um, just mention when you were talking about your students and how much you love them. Today, I got a message from uh, David Maloney, one of your former students, because I told him I was interviewing you oh. and, uh, and he's probably going to be on the podcast at some time. I'm not going to say probably, he is going to be on the podcast at some point. So David Maloney, who wrote Baca House, and he said, oh, this is so great. Have fun talking about you. He always gives me a boost of creative inspiration when I talk to him. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the thing is, it's like, but the reason why I'm, I'm going to plug Dave's book. Okay. Rocker House by David Maloney. Beautiful, beautiful collection of link stories. Go get it. USA Bloomsbury Press. I have mine downstairs. Uh, P.S. Uh, so, but that's part of it too, right? That's another one of the ways that writers show love artists, supporting artists is we buy each other's books. And like, I have a platform. I'm like, I'm going to let him come on and like hawk his wares, right? We want to talk stories and stuff like that. But my point being is, is that 
your students, I think, love you. There's a reason why. Uh, I've been on the boards. I see the commentary. People love you, and they do because I think they can feel and why David says that, right? He feels inspired every time he talks to you. Well, part of it is because he feels how much you actually care. We can feel, as a, as a kid who, who grew up the way, and again, look at, I'm still white. I still had privilege. I still, even, I, even though I was a white, white kind of poor kid, I get it. I had a leg up even above, right? Some of our brothers and sisters, people of color. But my point being is that, um, wait, where was I going with that? Oh. Gifts other writers give each other. Yeah, I don't know. It'll come. It'll come back to me if I'm supposed to say it. I think it was just. Um, mm. You're talking about because you care. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with it, but but I want to circle back to something else that you said about. Um, like digital age, because I know it's kind of a bone in contention with you. It's something that I've heard you say so many times and I repeat it to others and I always give credit. You once told me that I give credit to a fault, but I do give credit all the time because I think where it's been earned, it's deserved. But you once said these devices, and I quote, I quote AD3, they are making us rude and stupid. <laughs> and so yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little I, I, bit. I actually think they're, they're killing us before we're dead. Have you watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix? No. Oh my God. I, 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 all I can say is I watched it the other night. I felt a mix of rage, <laughs> uh, sadness. They're saying that since the invention of these, oh, basically it's a documentary where the people who created these platforms are talking about how they like at the time that they did it, they honestly, on some level, most of them didn't know what they were doing. They weren't thinking of the flip side of things. They did not think of the social consequences whatsoever. And, and now like, now they're like, we don't let our kids have devices or go on social media. One guy said, I had to build a program to stop me from using my own program that I created because it's nefarious and evil. Another guy said, we knew exactly what we were doing and we did it anyways. But my point was, is that you know, they were saying that young girl, young teenage girl, um, depression and suicide is up 300%. Skyrocketed since 2012 when these things became ubiquitous. You know, I, you know, I call them crack gadgets. Um, yeah. I, I love the internet. I love this laptop. I love that we can do this. I love the convenience of emails. I love my Google for research. I love YouTube. The invention of the handheld computer has been disastrous for so many people. I don't like social media. I don't like what it does mainly to young people, which is, you know, and you know, you've heard me quote this, but I, I think it's made everyone the curator of the museum of me, especially young people who are already toxically self-involved. They're supposed to, they're adolescent, but times, you know, a million now. And, and there's just so much that's harmful. But let's, let's tap into that though. Think about what you're saying. It's not saying, well, I get to um, as like as a writer, right? We get to self-express. We get to be creative. We we get to to move things from the inside out. We get to share, right? Like Tolstoy, like you said, I I always add on to that. Like another part of that section where he says, "Yes, art is transferring feeling from one heart to another," and what it does is it removes the perceived separation between the one who creates the art and the one who takes in the art. And what it's supposed to do is like you said, to bring us closer together. And so I think with these devices, what they do is like, 
exactly what you're talking about. It's like, it's a curation. It's not even like an expression. It's like, I'm going to meet, like meet, meal piece, piecemeal, piecemeal, right? These parts of me that I want you to see. I'm not going to go into the shadow. I'm not going to go into my imperfections. I'm going to literally become, um, I say, if it's not truth, it's theater. I'm going to, I'm going to perfect and perform and pretend. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with theater, but what, what I, what, what I hate about these gadgets and why I will never own one. And I've never sent a text and I never will. And I lost my flip phone two months ago. It hasn't changed my life a bit is um, Mary Oliver from one of her poems. Uh, Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. This whole talk's been about paying attention. You know, what, what, what kills me is I, you know, and you know, my, my students back, back in the world before the pandemic, I, I would say, you guys, these will never be allowed in my room because if I've learned nothing in my life, I've learned that, it goes like that. If you're lucky enough to live long, it still goes like that. And it breaks my heart that here are 18 young people in a room and no one's talking to each other. And what are you looking at? Instagram? You're looking at what some basketball player had for lunch? You're looking at someone's photo of a dog? There's someone next to you who you could be engaging with and having a moment with. And so I, I, I find them heartbreaking. You know, I, I've written an essay that I haven't shown you that I'm still working on. I don't even know if I'll put it out there, but it's not a, it's not a rant. It's not a manifesto because I, I, the digital horse has left the barn. We will not, these things are not going away. But the, the title of the essay is this, Anywhere But Here, Anyone But You. Mm-hmm. And that is what I hate about these things more than anything. Mm-hmm. It's robbed lovers and spouses of those moments with each other. It particularly breaks my heart when I see some young father walking. I saw, I've seen this so many times. I know you have too. Young father, mother walking a toddler down the road, holding his or her hand. I saw this happen. And the toddler was pointing to a well, probably two-year-old boy pointing to a, a squirrel or a chipmunk in the tree and said something about it. Dad's just scrolling through his phone. That kid, he just lost a, a divine moment with his child. That kid may have said the most brilliant, beautiful, totally particular thing about that squirrel or chipmunk, and daddy missed it, and it'll never happen again. And what the fuck would, did he find out? That LeBron James just liked somebody's fucking video? Mm-hmm. Breaks my heart. Nothing against LeBron James. He's a fine man. So let's talk about this, because I think part of what, what is coming up for me is I think I wanted to ask you this question, like what's the role of the writer or the uh, like, so like Fontaine, your wife, who's a, who's a choreographer and a dancer and a, I think a painter too. She's a another fellow creative and I'm married to a professional musician. Right. And like, thank God, like that's a whole other question around has being married to another artist changed things. I can say definitely it's been, thank God. Amen. But one of the things I wanted to say is that like, what's the role of the artists nowadays, right? Because I think part of it is to pay attention and um, also to um, to pay attention into, like you said, it's, it's about, because you were saying like, well, journalists, their job is to report and um, the writer, its job is experience. It's to capture. It's to capture. To capture it, right? So, so yeah, what do you think the role, what is the role of the writer and the artists in our world right now? Like how can- 
I don't think it's changed for a moment, um, but sadly, it's it's uh, it's taken a back seat to these very addictive, time-sucking machines. And I know that you know my my son Austin will fight with me on this and say, "Dad, you know how much I read on this. You know how better informed I am because of all the news I read on this." And I know it's not all bad. And I know that not everybody who has a, an iPhone—I'll never call it a smartphone—but not everybody <laughs> is is horribly addicted. Although. The average young person is on it eight to 11 hours a day. Um, here's my thing. I think about Faulkner, and I'm paraphrasing a line of his. He said, but the job of the writer, and I would say of the artist, is to freeze time. So in 100 years, when the reader reads it, it moves again. The thing about these fucking gadgets is everybody is so, they become, you become the machine. Well, what is the machine and what is the internet? The internet, the machine is all about distraction and this and this and that and this and that. And nobody is centered in their body, in the moment, right now, in this moment. I could just walk to fucking stir my sauce, have a massive stroke and die. Dude. But I thought I had this moment beforehand. I, I, I was, I've been here. I'll be here when it happens. So the job of the writer is to freeze time. So 100 years when the reader reads it, it moves again. I think that is so beautiful. So how do you freeze time? You descend into story. And how do you do that? You do it through character. And how do you do that? You open yourself to receiving whoever, whomever is showing up, whether it's young 12-year-old Karen and Lawrence or 15-year-old Andre and Haverhill or, you know, a character in your novel or short story who just came from who knows where, and then the only way to excavate him or his or her experience or their experience, if they're gender fluid, is through authentic curiosity. What's it like? And this is from Mike Nichols, the film director. He was asked, you know, what's 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 the question the storyteller has to ask? He said, well, it's not what the newspaper reporter asks. What the reporter asks is what happened. And what Nichols said is, it's not what happened, but what's it like? What's it really like to be in this thing that's happened? You know, sociologists, psychologists now have a term for what these things have done to us. Everybody's, and I'll never have one. I don't, I don't, I think I could actually get away with owning one. I don't think it would actually do the number on me that it can do on us because I have such a hatred for what it can do. But I will never own one for philosophical reasons. I will never own one. Imagine if I'm a pacifist, I'm never going to own a gun. So I will never own one for philosophical and moral reasons. I think they've hurt our humanity. Now, um, how can I descend into the now? If, if I am, oh, here's the phrase from the psychologist. I got distracted. Everyone's walking around in a continuous state of partial attention. Continuous yes. partial attention which robs us, look, I said this to my, to my uh, creative writing students at UMass Lowell on, on Zoom on Monday, might've been last week. I said, look, if I've learned nothing in my 61 years so far. I, I think I've learned the two things we're here to do. I think we're only here to do two things. I, I think I figured it out. One, we're supposed to do the thing that when we do it, we are more us than when we don't, as long as harmful to ourselves or others. It might be writing, it might be basket weaving, it might be carpentry, it might be plumbing, it might be being a mother um, or a father. I think that's part one. 
and you're lucky if you ever find it. Part two, and I think this is probably even more important, I think we're just here to love and be loved, to learn how to love others and to learn how to be loved back. But this is what's so fascinating, Andre. Like, you don't consider yourself, I mean, you, I, I would never say you're a religious person, neither am I. Um, and I don't have a problem with somebody thinking I'm a religious person because I talk about God and spirit all the time. But you are one of the most spiritual, non, non-owning spiritual people that I know. Like, this is what's so funny. This is exactly what I tell my spiritual mentoring clients. The, the, the questions we always ask. Identity, we have an identity and a purpose problem. We're always like, who am I and why am I here? I'm like, who you are and what you are is love. Your only job then is to extend that love. And whether you do it as a janitor or a writer or a musician or a painter or a stay-at-home mom, or you're making, I'm like, you want to know how to, how do you do it? I go, our only gig is to get better at giving and receiving love. Okay. That's me as a spiritual mentor. Sure. The right, you can't separate the two. The right is in there too, but you are actually wicked spiritual. Like I always laugh when I talk to you because you're like, yeah, I don't believe I'm like, dude, be a teacher. wicked spiritual. <laughs> get spiritual, but here's the other point I wanted to say about what you were just saying because it's all about presence. It's all about being present. And the woman that I'm a woman that I work with, her name is Marianne C, and she's a healer. She's an American living in Portugal, and uh, her husband is a, also a musician, but he's also a retired somatic therapist. And Marianne had this incredible story. Like I, I can't even go into it. I did a whole podcast episode with her about it, and. One of the things she said to me though, and I think it applies to writing also, is she says, information doesn't heal, intimacy heals. And I think being able to be close, like I said, to pay attention, to be in the wound, like to not, like not stay there and set up camp and pitch a tent, right? But to be in the, the, be in the place with the 12 year old Karen or the 15 year old Andre or the whatever, right? And being able to just hold the space for that part of you to have its voice, to tell the story that it needs to tell. Yeah. Cause that is the crack that Leonard Cohen wrote about where the light gets in. You got to get in the crack. You know, I think about Virginia Satir, we've talked about her and her, her definition of emotional intimacy. Intimacy is my own ability to share with you my truth and your ability to reciprocate. Right. And the key key words there are ability, truth and reciprocate. And we've all had the experience of, you know, summoning the nerve to some to tell someone we love what we're really thinking and feeling and getting a brick wall back. Yeah, it hurts. And, you know, if you've lived long enough and gotten lucky, you, you can also you've all had the experience of swapping those truths and you are more intimate. You can't help it. You may not stay married. You may not stay together but you are closer in that moment than you were before and so i i, I actually i and you know this from working with me in the classroom i i that comes up for me i i will i will bring that up when we talk about creative writing because our job as writers is to do part one we just have to be as truthful and open and naked on the page as possible we've got to plummet we've got to illuminate it we've got to find it and shine it uh, no matter what happens. And, and it's up to the reader if he or she wants to show up for that. And, and, and it's frankly out of our hands. I often, I remember the first communication class I ever took at BU on the very first day, the professor said, and it's never left me, they said, um, the message sent is not always the message received because you're going to put something out there and it has to get through all the layers, all the layers of the recipient's 
um, story, bias, prejudice, um, how they view themselves, the lens that they look at the world through. And they said, so you're not responsible, like you can't control how it lands and how it's received, but you are responsible for the intention in which you send the message. And I think that's kind of like what we're talking about here is like, and, and I, I just, oh my God, dude, I could like talk to you all day long, but I want to, I want to just kind of um, wrap it up with like this final thing, which is. I know people who, writers always ask these same questions, and I think there's something about this. So in spiritual, in my spiritual mentoring, there's a piece where I always talk about what I call the five Ds, and it's daily dedication, determination, discipline, and devotion, and how the discipline ultimately moves us into freedom. And that's the devotion. Like when you're a kid, they make you brush your teeth, right? You do it because you have to. Eventually, you start to do it because you know it's taking care of yourself because it's good for you, right? You start to do things devotionally because you don't feel like yourself if you don't, right? And I think there's this, I always, it's why I always talk about like writing is a spiritual practice. So can we kind of talk about just like, just quickly touch upon like the discipline, what it takes to show up, to actually hold space, to write something. So a little bit about process and place, like where you write and what you do. I know, I know I've been in your writing room and I know some of the things you do to prepare, but can we just talk about that? Maybe the ritual before you write? Yeah. Um, so I built a soundproof cave in my basement, <laughs> five feet wide, 11 feet long, six feet only tall ceiling, little port window in the back, which I cover with a blanket. And um, I write at a plywood desk in front of a blank wall. And, you know, I'll start the day reading a few poems to kind of light a candle to a more meditative state. Also, poets are, are writing better work than anybody else, and it inspires me. It's condensed and beautiful and true. I read a lot of contemporary poets. And um, I've been doing that for a long time, years and years. And then I'll sharpen my pencils. I'll put on my headphones from my carpentry days, and I can just hear my my heartbeat and my breath, and I sharpen my black wing 602 pencils. Which, which look like this. That's it. That's it. I know. <laughs> and then um, I open my notebook and, oh, no, no, I'm missing a step. What I do now, in the last few years, I will type the previous day's handwritten work into the computer while listening to music. And then I will... Um, push it aside, do the poetry, sharpen the pencils, open the notebook, and try to dream. You know, Richard Bausch famously said, if you think that you're thinking when you're writing, think again. You're much closer to the dreaming side of your mind. So dream, dream, dream it through. Now, what does that mean? It means let go and let them take over. Let go of control. Um, so I do that until my concentration fades to two and a half, three hours tops when I'm composing from scratch. Then I go work out to clear my head and get back into my body. And, and then I don't let myself think about what I'm working on for 24 hours until the next morning. Because I've learned to sort of sublimate it and kind of push it down into my subconscious where the dream world takes over. I don't talk about it to my wife. You know, she's my soulmate, Fontaine. And like, I won't, I'll be working on a book for five years. She won't know one thing about it. Nothing. She won't know a thing nothing when i tell people that they look at me like what i'm like yeah he he considers yeah. it like being pregnant man you don't mess with the baby like it's in yeah. there pregnant and I, my job is to, just to get nutrients to that dark place but i'm thinking about the word discipline you know um 
we talked about self-care earlier. Like, you know, it's not discipline to brush your teeth. You just, you wouldn't want to walk around with that taste in your mouth. We do, we do it to take care of ourselves. We wouldn't think mm-hmm. about wiping our asses and we do that. That's not even, that's not discipline. It's self-care. In the same way, it's self-care. Um, the discipline the writer has is also self-care. But Karen, I'm thinking about the word discipline and the word in, in disciples. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know exactly what the, the root is, but the disciples, the disciples are the followers of Jesus. And, and I do think that so maybe discipline is nothing but following something larger than yourself. But that's what, again, back to my devotion, Which is an act of devotion. And you know from hearing me talk ad nauseum over the years about creative writing, I do think, and not every writer is going to agree with me at all about this, but I, I believe it, I'm in my 30, how many years have I been doing this? I didn't want to, 38 straight years I've been writing and um, I believe this more than I ever did. I think that, that writing is an act of humility where you're stepping into something larger than you are. And, 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 and that is your God-given, universe-given, divine-given imagination. Every kid gets one and it's larger than the kid. And, and that's, where all the, that's where all the goodies are, all the angels and demons and everything in between. I was giving a talk a few, maybe I think before the pandemic, I was in some Midwestern city, and this uh, elderly black woman, probably in her late 80s, very uh, um, just beautiful, vivacious, deep-voiced lady said, you know, I, I, was a, I was an accountant for years, and because I'm an accountant, you know, it hurt my writing because all the I's and T's had to line up. All the columns had to be perfect. She said, only in the last few years, she said, have I learned to play in the gray. And I love that. I forget the woman's name. is like Reva or something. I said, I'm going to quote you. And, and, and so that's what it's all about. It's about playing in the gray. So after two, three hours tops, really two, two and a half, when I'm just writing those first drafts, dreaming through the first drafts, uh, then I go and work out, clear my head, and go back out the next day. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's fascinating because I think most people um, of a certain age or whatever can be like, I can't believe you write longhand still. I, I really believe that there's a, a different connection. Whatever, again, plenty of writers can disagree with me. Uh, there are times when I sit down to jot, jot something off quickly and I'll do it on the computer. But I mean, I was a kid with a pencil in my hand and a notebook too, you know, uh, a mead, like a regular little like cheap notebook or whatever. I think there's something powerful about moving from the head to the heart to the hand onto the page. And- oh, you said it perfectly. The hand to the heart to the hand. I mean, the head to the heart to the hand. I think that yeah. is, that's it. And I think there's something really powerful about that. But I, I but. Um, but yeah, so it's like that writing that you do first is all with your pencil and your notebook. And then the next day you transfer that, like you said, by writing it to music and that's where it goes, but you don't edit it, right? You don't, or do you edit as you write with type it in or do you just, are you transferring? No, here's the thing. Um, then I'll turn off the music. I'll read what I typed, fix a few typos. You know, if there's a really horrible sentence, like really clunky, I'll, I'll fix it. But I, I don't want to get too wrapped up in perfecting it too soon because you won't move forward either you've got to there's a wonderful line from a great book called the gift by lewis b hyde who said he said the premature evaluation cuts off the flow the flow see what i'm saying andre you see what i'm saying premature evaluation cuts off the flow and here's the thing too uh, and, and this is one of the shadows of fine art instruction, MFA programs, conferences like the great one we do down in Florida, Writers in Paradise, is 
one of the shadow sides of that experience is that it encourages its participants to prematurely anticipate an audience and prematurely anticipate what they're writing as a book. And that gets them to write too fast, to cut corners, to not go deeply enough, and to not get too messy. So I, I don't let myself clean it up so much that it's not messy. I want to keep it messy and keep it fractured and just keep trying to find where the truth Where's the truth? If, however, I've written a scene that totally feels like bullshit the next day, I think, oh, my God, that's totally made up. I just want to write about, you know, booze or food or you know, that woman. I, I can't go forward until I, I have to cut it and rewrite it till I believe it's true. Then I continue. Well, because otherwise it feels gross and you know you're full of shit. Like, it's like, this is bullshit. Yeah, so it hurts your self-esteem. But also it's like that deck of cards, that house of cards. you got a whole floor that... The foundation it is totally has termites. <laughs> yeah, got, got to get rid of that bad floor. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, what? I have to go finish my sauce. Yeah, no. Yeah. Let, let's wrap it up. Uh, so I think that was a, a really beautiful place. Five hours, my friend. Believe me. Um, no, no, no. I, I too. I mean, people are only going to have so much like time to listen, but. Um, I, down. Say that again. Edit this down. Uh, yeah, I think that this has been just so fantastic and so amazing. And just thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to others. And I, I think it's so helpful, right? There's so many people out there who have stories that they want to tell and they want to express themselves and they want to do it. And um, I think that, I mean, like I said, we could, we, we could go on and on and on about social media and, and all this other stuff. But I just... Can I say one quick thing about social media? Yes. And, and platforms is that was my last that was my question all right i'm so glad it's like spiritual team on the job because that was the question i wanted to ask you i want to address that because you know again i, I look I'm, nothing's all bad it's well rape and murder are all bad but i mean that social media is not all bad i know that there are a lot of uh, isolated people who can find community on there etc what i will say though is I think if there's any one enemy to, to creativity, it's self-consciousness. Am I making that noise? Yeah, something's dinging on your end. It might be your battery. Is your... Uh, yeah, I, I just plugged it in. Why is it doing that? You know what? Well, I'll fix it later. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. So it's I do believe that if there's any one enemy to human creativity, it is self-consciousness. You know, there's a wonderful line, I'm sure you've heard me quote from Nadine Gordimer, the Nobel Prize winner from South Africa, where in one of her novels, um, two middle-aged women are having coffee and, and our protagonist has an insight as to what sincerity is while she's talking to her friend. And the line is, oh, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself, right? You don't have one eye in the mirror to see how you're doing. You're simply just present totally doing it you know um so so one of the one of the, the things i find heartbreaking and challenging about social media and publishers which really pisses me off telling young writers they need a fucking platform oh my god that's my question right here so let me speak to that is is it puts um the writer in a toxically self-conscious state which is an antithetical to writing well it does not help you know, I, I truly believe, and I, I said this to a class over the summer on, on Zoom, I say, you know, I really believe that every day a writer should write as if he or she will be executed in the morning. I think we really need to write 
with everything every day because we might be taken tomorrow. So let's write as truly as we can now. The, I, I get so goddamn angry at publishers. Look, my $27.50 hardcover that Karen was so sweet to buy, well, I got $2.70 of that. You go earn your goddamn 25 or $24.50. Your job's to make my work public. Your job's to remind people what they're doing. That's not the writer's job. It is not the writer's job to go get a Twitter account and a Insta chat, Snapagram. It's not the writer's job to do that. And it really pisses me off. And I know it's easy for me to say because I'm established and I don't have to do it now as much as I would if I were a first time novelist. But I, I really, I, I just, I, I, please, for every writer out there listening to this, I believe that publishers are abdicating their responsibility and they're part of the contract. Screw them. They can do it. You go write another book. Okay. That's, that's the, that is the final word. Thank you so much for saying that because I wanted them to hear it. And I like spiritual, I didn't even have, I was like, okay, I, we got to go. I'm not going to ask that one, but you, you circled back. See, that's the thing. Like, this is the part of we're all one. I believe that there's that one conscious mind too. And I think some part of your mind knew that some part of my mind was sending up the flare and it was received. So just thank you so much, Andre. I love you so much. Love you too, KK. You guys who are listening, you can now hear why he is one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, he's the real deal and you are so special. And I'll just do a little shout out. We're gonna, we're gonna dedicate this episode to beloved Mary. Your mother-in-law, who was your best friend, I don't want to speak for you, who recently passed. And if you guys follow me on social media, you saw the pictures I posted of Mary. Um, I get who we 99, got. 99 years old, lived with us for 15 years in this house, became one of my dearest friends. I talk to her every day. I tell her, please, come haunt me. Please. I'm waiting. Yeah. Yeah. She was something else. So, so Andre, just thank you for your time, brother. I love you. I appreciate you. I uh, hope. Hope to see you in person soon and uh, give, yeah. my love, give my love to Fontaine and the kids. I will. And I will serve you some of this sauce. You and your talented man, Chris, one of these days <laughs> the shit's behind us. All right, sweetheart. Bye. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Karen Kenny Show. <laughs> I super duper appreciate your time friendship, and support. And look, if something that I shared from my heart today somehow landed in yours, I'd love to hear about it. So please tag me on Facebook or Instagram or IG stories or wherever the cool kids are hanging out these days. And let me know what your favorite part was or what you found most helpful. You can find me over at Karen Kenny Live. That's Karen, K-E-N-N-E-Y-L-I-V-E. And if you're digging what I'm saying and you want to hear more, I'd be wicked grateful if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review because you guys, that's how you'll help me to keep spreading the love. And if you can think of someone that could benefit from hearing this episode, please share it with them. I'd also love to stay connected with you. So if the feeling is mutual, please go to karenkenny.com backslash freebie and download my free guide to building your spiritual team. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, keep living in the fearless flow. Know that I see you, I appreciate you, and I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing.